Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his ankle! Follow me! Follow me to freedom! Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York Sports Talk, Long Suffering Fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips, week number seven of the Social Distancing Podcast. Although there is a change this week, we got some actual sports news to discuss. The NFL virtual draft happened last weekend. It's in the books. We got to see some stuff happen. We got to see Roger Goodell not be a cyborg and be actual commissioner, be a human being. That was fun. We got to see some stuff and not expect to see. The draft went off technologically down the hitches. I'm going to be joined in just a minute to recap the draft with the great Joe Dalvizi, our football guy here on the podcast. Joe and I will break down the giant draft, the jet draft, some big storylines nationally, as well as some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, like how cool was it to see Roger Goodell's man cave and to see stuff like Cliff Kingsbury's pad or Bill Belichick's dog at the computer making picks for him. That was fun. We'll talk about that with Joe in just a minute. We'll also dive into the fan forum this week. We're going to bounce around the NFL. We're going to check in with fans of 11 different teams to get their takes on their draft classes. Some of the voices from last year's draft fan forum are in here. We have some new ones as well. Also, some new voices of the podcast we've not heard from before. We will get to all of them in just a bit. I'm also going to do the last dance. Like I said last year, we're going to recap this every week. Episodes 3 and 4 aired over the weekend. We're going to recap those episodes with... The dynamic duo that helps call most of the Iona women's basketball games, Ian Sachs, and new voice of the podcast, Austin Stilato. We're going to break down the Rodman-Jackson hours, some of the fun story on the camera there, and some more memorable quotes as well. Be sure you stuck around until the end of the podcast, it's two-minute drill. This is me flying solo here, I'll give you my thoughts on the end of the Showtime drama, Homeland, which wrapped up the series on Sunday. And they did the interesting take to stick the landing. I have some thoughts on the series as a whole and this how they brought it to a close at the end of the show. But we'll get it all started with this week's opening tip, where I talk NFL draft with Joe D right after this. For Joe Burrow, what impressed me the most was the big games. There were five opponents that finished in the top 10 when the season ended. Against those five opponents, Joe Burrow had 22 touchdown passes and zero interceptions. And when the pressure was on, he was always at his best. He was absolutely Joe Cool. Daniel Jeremiah, when you see Joe Burrow, what's the first thing that stands out when you watch the tape? Well, to me, it's just the poise that he plays with. I, I look at accuracy, poise, decision-making, playmaking, and Joe Burrow's off the charts in all four of those areas. The big leap took place from 18 to 19 because they got five guys out into the route, and that's where he was able to spread and shred every single defense he faced with LSU this fall. All right, we are back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. It's heard Mel Kuyper, Daniel Jeremiah, and Trey Wingo from the ESPN NFL Network combined draft broadcast, breaking down the number one overall pick, Joe Burrow, going to the Cincinnati Bengals. Joining us today on the podcast to break down the draft, our NFL guy, the host of the Sharp Cheddar podcast, social distancing at his house, the great Joe Dalwizio. Joe, welcome. How are you? Mike, I am doing well. I'm not going to lie. I, I appreciate being on, but uh, the social distancing, I wish we were back in the studio like we usually do our uh, podcast. Hit. Yeah, prior to the social distancing era, there were two people who were consistently always in-person guests. It was you and Sandra Rosa. Now you both have been on the phone, so the streak is over. 
I am I'm disappointed that the streak is over, but I'm glad that uh, uh, you're doing well and you're healthy and that uh, we're getting through this and you're still pumping out content. Yeah, I am pumping out the content. They've had longer episodes lately. so But again, people have nothing to do, so I don't mind throwing out two hours of stuff people listen to. Absolutely. Yeah, so before we dive into the draft, how has the soul distancing era been treating you? Um, It's been it's been okay. Um, there's been times where uh, I'm just bored out of my mind, which I think everyone's going through that. Um, I spent a lot of time reading books. Um, I've watched a, a couple of shows that I, you know, never had the time to kind of sit down and watch because I feel like uh, I'm always on the move. So I, I've done a lot of a lot of normal things, but um, a lot more TV than I'm used to, though. That's for sure. Have you dived into the, any of the old games yet? Like some people are just watching old games get their sports fix. Mike, I'm going to be honest with you. The old games don't do it for me at all. Like, I know the results. I don't care. I don't want to watch it again. Like, even – I'm talking about, like, classics. Like, even the Packers winning the Super Bowl. Like, I've seen that game so many times already. Uh, I, it has, I have no interest. I, I, will, I will admit this, though. Like, I am more into um, the documentaries. Like, I, I, any docu- sports documentary that I haven't seen, I, I've been diving into those a lot more as well. And, of course, obviously, the last dance is – it's must-watch television every Sunday, so you know I'm all in on that. Yeah, I'm in onto that as well. I'm going to recap that later in the podcast. Our friends Ian Sachs, Austin Stalaw. Let's talk about this draft. So, obviously, this is the I got to get Christ at the NFL. They gave us some normalcy. They gave us the draft. And what were your thoughts on this whole virtual draft experience? Uh, I thought the I thought the NFL draft. Uh, I thought the the virtual draft. Excuse me. Was was excellent. I thought they nailed it. I mean. In a time where like everything is down, the NFL somehow figured out a way to um, make it lively, uh, figured out a way to still come up on top. And it always seems like when you're talking professional sports, the NFL is always cream of the crop. And here they are again with, you know, the world essentially upside down, able to pull it off. Uh, they nailed it. Everything I, I expected technical disasters i expected camera feeds to go in and out i expected maybe someone trying to hack the system some delays with the picks but that wasn't the case and uh i thought they they really did a lot of good research on on each prospect they had to dive a little bit deeper to find some extra stories on these guys um and i love the fact that they really combined the networks you know espn you had daniel jeremiah kurt warner um, Michael Irvin all, all breaking it down with, you know, Trey Wingo. I, I just thought overall they they really did a good job. Yeah, I was impressed with the quality of the draft because I was expecting like, okay, you know, maybe it's be like the worst case, like, oh, it's like a big Zoom call, but like the the video was quality. There was a little lag, which is understandable sometimes, but like the only bones I have to pick with there sometimes like the I get their stretch of content, like there were times I was in a group th- chat last week with our friends Martina Pooch and Will Schneiderham. We were joking that every process was either highlights of them playing basketball or a personal tragedy story. I feel like they were really big on all those two things, the, these guys. But other than that, it was a high-quality broadcast. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's the one thing that I kind of got sick of is the, the the personal high tragedy stories. Like Some of them, like, yeah, they're great. And like I just felt like every time we were hearing it and like they would play the same sad music in the background and it's like all right did we really need to know about like x y and z i mean again they did everything they could to to stretch content 
latched on. But in terms of the quality of the broadcast, I mean, even under cer- normal circumstances, when you're watching, let's say, ESPN or NFL Network, and they cut to a reporter live at the stadium, there's always some sort of a delay. Sometimes it's it's smooth, but you know, in terms of quality, really didn't it really didn't get much better than that. I mean, the one thing that maybe uh, hurt them a little bit virtual was having that like one-on-one interview with each athlete. You know, that's something that you would have seen more in in the present time, right? They they get drafted, they walk off the stage, and then they're being interviewed by somebody. Um, I know they did that a few times with uh, FaceTime or Zoom or whatever technology they used, but um, that's really the only thing that that was lacking, but it wasn't a big deal because a lot of these prospects jumped on Zoom or a conference call um, with the team that they got drafted, and you were able to listen to them there. So, uh, you know, they filled that void um, that way. Yeah, I like that for sure. I did, like, I also say it was fun getting to see all these, like, coaches and GMs with their families and some of these places they live. I mean, like, without this, we never would have seen Cliff Kingsbury's Bachelor of Hair, which is absolutely insane. Dude, absolutely insane. I, I, I kind of just want to go out there and see what it's like. Like, I don't, I, I don't want to meet Cliff at all. I just want to go out and see his house and just get a tour. Like, even if he's not there, because that thing looks phenomenal. I thought it was pretty funny when the players were tweeting about it, too. Like, um, you had uh, Patrick Mahomes saying, like, how do I get a house like that? And you had the Honey Badger joking around saying, I wonder why they couldn't pay me. Yeah, I just I, I just thought that was really funny. And I, I also, I'm with you. I enjoyed seeing the families around. I enjoyed seeing the pets around. I will admit, though, if I was in the, that position, I don't think I would have my family around, my kids around, my pets around. I would be way too anxious and way too nervous that, you know, one monitor gets unplugged or something goes wrong. I mean, I think, have you seen the Bill O'Brien clip of him being, looks like visibly very frustrated and upset and just like yelling at the telephone? Like maybe that had to do with a bad kick or maybe something tech-wise didn't work. So I don't know. I, I like, I definitely like that dynamic. I like seeing it. It made it, it made it feel somewhat normal because that's what everyone's doing. Everyone's home. Yeah, in terms of the Bill O'Brien thing, reference, I did find that out online. But apparently, like they had a deal with the Lions for a trade, and the Lions backed out of the deal. So he was screaming about the phone because Patricia backed out of a deal on them. That's what that was. There you go. I mean, I'm not surprised. It made for good. It, it made for good TV, though. Yeah. Also made for good TV was Bill Belichick's dog being on the screen with the cry on Bill Belichick, New England head coach, on there. Uh, I'll tell you what. I think Bill Belichick gained a lot of a lot more fans and a lot more. Uh, brownie points in the in the eyes of the of the nfl fans um you know how bill is he's he's smug he's arrogant he he's obnoxious at times uh i think you saw the human side of bill belichick a little bit at this draft especially with that dog yeah the, i love the belichick setup because like bill belichick does the actual nfl draft like we do our fancy dress like the laptop the kitchen table just, just having his like pens and paper out there like with his notes like He's doing like these little things, opposed to like some of these giant, elaborate Texas these people are putting in their houses. Yeah, and then you got people like Mike Vrabel who's having a frat party in the background. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, what was going on at his house? I just did not understand half of this. Yeah, I don't know. I, I seem like a lot of people wearing different costumes. Potentially, someone going to the bathroom with the door open, even though people are saying no. That's a guy sitting down in khakis. I have no idea what's, what what went on in that scene. But the but I thought what was funny was the ensuing day, 
you saw nobody and he was riding solo, I could guarantee you the NFL gave Coach a call and said, hey, tone it down back there. Yeah, I'm sure they that somebody called up Mike Rabel and said, What the hell's going on out here? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because I couldn't tell. One of his kids looked like he was dressed up as him in his, in his heyday. You had the kid in the unitard and you had the kid in the back possibly taking and take, dropping a deuce in the background. Yeah, again, I have no idea what was going on in that scene. I don't know what possessed him to think like that would be okay. Um, I guess people laugh, but at the same time, people are like, what what is going on? Yeah, that was true. I also enjoyed, like, I think the guy who gained the most in this draft was Roger Goodell because when the draft starts, he's a little stiff. He's trying to be corporate. He has the blazer on. But then as the draft goes on, we start getting more casual Goodell because, like, he switches from the blazer to to the pullover sweater and eventually he's sitting in the chair, he's eating the M&M's, he's leaning back in the chair at the end of uh, Friday night and making the picks with his feet up. Like, and then we see him Saturday interviewing with the t-shirt and the khakis on and seeing more cat human Roger. And I think Caswell Goodell was a winner. Yeah, you know, I thought he was stiff for a majority of the, uh, of the draft and understand, understandably so because there's not a live audience. So you're like kind of have to like take it and be a little bit more enthusiastic about things. Um, and this isn't a slight on Roger Goodell. I probably blame the producers more. But I thought it was so awkward every time that before he announced the pick that he would turn to the television scre- screen with the fans booing and then face the camera and, and you know, announce the pick. It just didn't look right. I, I thought he also, like, stumbled a bunch through, you know, reading the teleprompter or any time, like, they had a special guest. And they brought it back to him, you know, just thanking them. Oh, thank you, Offset, for your support. Like, it, it was just so not, like, genuinely, genuine. It was a little cringeworthy. But I agree. Like, by the end of the draft, when he's in, like, the T-shirt and khakis, like, I know the NFL had to put him out there in a suit. And, and you know, it had to be corporate. Right? It, it, it is serious and it's an event and you want to look good. But, like, imagine if Roger Goodell was just chilling in that chair the entire time in uh, – in a t-shirt and khakis just announcing the picks with you know the the fans in the background booing i think like that would have been like that would have hit home even more like how many people right now are are stuck working at home and are literally just wearing sweats and like a dress shirt every day or sweats every day with with a sweater like that hit home because that's how everyone is that's how everyone's acting right now so i think like if they would have played that off some more it would have been better yeah, I, I did like the point where, like, he was when he stopped, he stopped standing and started sitting in the chair to do the picks. They like, especially with the sweater on front, I felt like he was about to read us a Christmas story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I felt like uh, he, he was about to he was about to read us a Christmas story as well. Yeah, that would that was fun. Let's get to some of the uh, teams in this draft. We'll start with the locals. We'll start with the Giants and first round pick. They get Andrew Thomas out of Georgia. Dave Allen basically goes after two areas mostly. He gets his hog mollies. He gets three offensive linemen. He gets a couple of players for his secondary, including Xavier McKinney in the second round. What do you think of the Giant draft? Yeah, I thought they had a great draft. I thought Gettleman nailed it. I mean, he came out and he said that he wanted to build that offensive line. He wanted to address the needs. Uh, and he did that. I mean, and that and that's key when you're talking about Giants football. You look at that roster right now. you got a, you got a young quarterback. you got a really young running back. I mean, you want to protect those guys. And the, the easiest way to protect those guys is to get good guys to block for them. So I thought I thought they, they really nailed it. And they attacked another need in, in secondary. You know, the McKinney pick, um, 
was great. I mean, he has the potential of being their next landing Collins. I mean, the kid had a phenomenal college career. So I, I really thought the Giants took a step in the right direction. Yeah, I thought they did a very good job in this draft. I would have liked to see him spread the wealth a little bit more because I know they could have used an edge rusher. They could have possibly taken another receiver. Maybe you spread it out, but I can't fault Galvin for going, you know what, like, I have to fix this offensive line. They throw as many resources as I can at it to fix the problem. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I think, you know, other than the 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 offensive linemen and, and the secondary, I mean, he drafted all linebackers. You know, you never know what you're going to get with those linebackers. You know, they're all pretty much late picks. But, you know, if you could get one of them to, to be something, um, you're going to look back at this draft, and it could be a, a real foundation for the New York Giants for the upcoming years. Yeah, definitely could. Let's go to my team. Let's go over the Jets. What do you think of the Jet draft? To be honest, I, uh, I thought for the most part that Joe Douglas did a very solid job in, in his first draft. Um, I don't think he, he necessarily reached too much on anyone. And he hit two, you know, two of the biggest needs in you know offensive tackle and, and wide receiver, and he did that early. I thought that was key. Um, a couple things that you know I, I questioned a little bit, um, I thought they should have took a corner probably a little earlier. Um, you know, they added they add Bryce Hall, who's coming off an ankle who's coming off ankle surgery. So you know, not a lot of you know, there's a lot of potential, but there is reason to be concerned there. Uh, I also thought they would they may have snagged a couple more wide receivers, not not three, but maybe a second wide receiver to throw in the bunch. I mean, you you lose Robbie Anderson. Um, you got to replace him. You're putting a lot of stock in Mims to to make an impact right away. It would have been nice to add a little bit more competition to the wide receiver depth chart. And uh, the other thing that I was a little confused about um, was the fourth round decision to to take a quarterback. I mean, I think you could still get some great value in that fourth round, and you know, possibly get an impact. Not, I don't know about an impact player, but a player that's going to you know have a substantial role on your team. You got Sam Darnold. He's, he's going to be turning 23. I mean, I, I don't know. I think it was a little too early to try to find uh, even a developmental quarterback. Yeah, I get those concerns. The two things I like about Douglas is like, number one, he wasn't cute with the draft. The Jets sometimes tend to be like, oh, like, we're going to take the best player on the board. We'll take another interior defensive lineman because he was the number one player on our board. He took guys that they needed. The optimal strategy going in this draft was tackle receiver. His first two picks were tackle receiver. He didn't overthink that, which is number one. And number two, I also like the fact that he read the room correctly with the Denzel Mims situation at 48, where as I was in that group chat with Martino and Will Schneiderhand, and we were sitting there talking about like, oh, they got to take him. They trade back 11 picks, get him anyway, turn that one pick into three extra picks essentially and add some depth to the roster. I think the fact that he had an idea of how to read the room and how to maneuver in the draft was definitely a help. Oh, definitely, definitely, and that goes a long way. And if you you see that early on, I mean, again, you know this more than anyone, right? You you build your teams via the draft, and if you continue to draft well, the the, the more you draft well, the the better you're gonna bet, the better you're gonna be, the quicker you're gonna be at you know at, at a Super Bowl. So it's definitely a positive sign. I'd be happy if I was a Jet fan. If I was a, if I was a new uh, a Giants fan as well. I mean, again, I I don't see. Either of these teams deserve either of these teams both. If you, you're going to give them a grade, you know, anywhere between B, B plus. I mean, you got some guys giving them A's and A minus. I mean, they. Uh, I think I think they they both did very well. 
Yeah, I love the I love these teams draft, and they were they kind of were did we were expected from them. They we basically knew what they needed. They went out and addressed those needs. There were some surprises though. What do you think was the biggest surprise of the draft? Yeah, I think it, it has to do with uh, two teams that took quarterbacks, and I think it's the Green Bay Packers taking Jordan Love and not only drafting a quarterback but trading up for a quarterback. Now, I was also a little bit surprised with the Eagles' decision to take uh, Jalen Hurts. Why? Like, yeah, I think those definitely big surprises. I think the Hurts thing, I boggled my mind because that's a big, big ask for a guy's going to be your backup quarterback. Packers thing, we'll get to more in a bit. But I'm going to go to real quick. Like, who do you think were the biggest winners? Like, who killed the draft? Uh, I got a few teams. I mean, so I think I think the Ravens did excellent. Like, I think the Ravens really added some some ballers to this team. I mean, Patrick Queen fell into their lap. Um, Devin DuVernay, a little bit later, the wide receiver from from uh, Texas. Malik Harrison, the outside last linebacker. I mean, it seemed like everyone was falling right in right into place for that team, and like you saw the excitement from Harbaugh. It, I think they they were already a very good team. They improved on both sides of the ball. Like their defense only got stronger through this draft. You gave you gave Lamar Lamar Jackson a a potential new a uh, new target for him. But the Cowboys, but the Cowboys had an excellent draft. CD Lamb falling to them, taking the corner and Trevon Diggs, Neville Gallimore. I mean, they got better on both sides of the ball. The Vikings, you know, it, it pains me to admit it, but you know they 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 get rid of they get rid of Diggs, and they turn Diggs into Justin Jefferson and some more picks. They take the corner from TCU at thirty-one. Then to start day two, they they grab the offensive lineman in, in uh, Ezra Cleveland, who a lot of people had you know projected possibly round one. Another team, the Cardinals. You know Isaiah Simmons dropping to them. Thinking about the combination of Simmons and Chandler Jones is pretty wild and then another guy drops to them um who was projected to be in the first round and josh jones so i mean you pair that up with the addition of deandre hopkins in the offseason and you're like wow like the defense got better the offense got better they look good yeah those were definitely some interesting teams as well the vikings i mean they just felt like they were picking every other turn on day three they had so many picks and I have to say also, we go back to like the quarantine situation with these, these uh, executives and coaches with their setups there. I mean, like, you had two of the more iconic quarantine setups there with the Mike Zimmer ranch with, like, three, like, deer heads on the wall or in Jerry Jones's Bond villain yacht. Jerry Jones's yacht was unbelievable. Like, that, that, that literally looked like it was from a movie. Uh, we, uh, did they ever say where the yacht was? I don't think they ever said where the yacht was. I remember, like, I tweeted about it. I said, it looks like it's either, it's the inside of, like, Dr. No's lair combined with, like, the interior hospitality area inside the parks in Westworld. That's, like, where I thought now, Jerry Yacht's, Jerry Jones' yacht was. Now that I think about it, it kind of looks like the inside of Dr. Evil's, you know, space. <laughs> inside his, like, home, basically. Yeah, well, Jerry's got to drift on that yacht every year now, how well they did. Oh my God, it's unbelievable! And I mean, they get a new coach in um, in Mike McCarthy, and now there's like no excuses. There's no excuses for that. I mean, he's got weapons all over the place on that offense. Like, you got to shut up and play now. Yeah, they do. And we'll go the other direction. He gave out some hardware for the winners. Who blew this draft? I think the Raiders. They're one team that blew the draft. I mean, they obviously needed a wide receiver one, and 
I I was surprised. I don't know about you. I was surprised they decided to go with the speedster and rugs rather than going with Judy or Studio Lamb. Um, they needed a corner. I thought they reached with Arnett from Ohio State. I mean, a lot of people had this guy going in the second round. And then when they were back in the cl- on the clock in the third round, like, listen, I'm all for, like, drafting multiple people at multiple positions, especially if it's a position at need. But you go back-to-back wide receivers, like, look at the board. Look at the roster. Like, there's other needs there. You could have really you could have really built something special with the amount of picks that you had, and you just, you just didn't read the room the right way. You didn't read the board properly. Another team, though, um, I thought the Chicago Bears, you know, they had a light draft, obviously, because of the Khalil Mack trade. But I thought it was a reach getting uh, getting Komet the tight end from Notre Dame at 43, um, especially since they, they drafted Jimmy Grant. Uh, excuse me, they signed Jimmy Graham. And with that being said, it you know, I wanted to make a joke on, on Twitter about, you know, the Bears having 35 million tight ends, but I couldn't even do that because the Packers decided to take a quarterback in the first round. But, I mean, look at their roster. They have nine they have nine tight ends. And another team that I thought uh, surprisingly um, didn't draft so well were the Patriots. I mean, this just seemed like total rebuild after losing Brady. They loaded up on defense. They draft two tight ends. I mean, I could totally see this team trying to you know, just pound the ball on the run and just escape victory by victory. Hopefully the defense is strong enough. You know, tells me they're pretty uncertain to uh, how that play is going to be with whoever ends up being the quarterback there. Yeah, I think the Bears thing is dead on. I think that, that they had 10 tight ends on the roster right now. It's just absolutely absurd. And in fact, also, like Jimmy Graham, the people forget about this. Not only did they sign Jimmy Graham, they gave Jimmy Graham a no-trade clause for no reason whatsoever. I still don't understand the math behind that one. Oh, it's, it's absurd. I mean, they gave him so much money, and I mean, I don't know what they're paying. I guess they decided to pay Jimmy Graham on his like past performance because it wasn't like he he did anything phenomenal in, in, in Green Bay. Let's be honest. No, uh, he was pretty bad there. I do have some other ones who I, I think New England's dead on as well because like Belichick said, basically like it was not by design to not take a quarterback or a receiver in the draft, but they needed both of those things badly. I mean, they're no weapons in that team whatsoever, and they're relying on Jared Sinner or Brian Hoare to be the quarterback right now, which is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, no, I have a hard time believing that you're not confident in either of those guys. Again, who knows what Stidham could could be. Maybe he's a lot better than you think, but at the same time, I think they may have their eyes on a quarterback in next year's draft. We'll say that. My theory on what happened there is I think that Bill wanted Jalen Hurts, and he was stunned the Eagles actually took him in the second round. Really? Yeah, because you had the Alabama you, conne- you had the Alabama connection where he played for Saban. He and Saban are like great friends. He has a bit of that mobility factor now. This old raising NFL and Hurts is like a smart player. He's a good team player. I feel like that's the kind of quarterback Bill will want on that roster. Give him some options. And when the Eagles took him in the second round, I don't think Bill's expecting that. It makes sense. I think he. I think he's in a in a tough spot because I mean, look at the quarterback that he's had over the years and Tom Brady. And- it definitely isn't easy replacing a guy like Tom Brady. So, you know, I, I think he, he wants to roll and see with what he what he has. And again, maybe in the AFC, you, you, you could skate by in the AFC East. I know the, the Bills are, are much better. You would you would anticipate that the Dolphins will be much better after their 30 million picks. You would assume that the Jets would be, you know, a little bit improved if Sam Darnold can, can continue to take a step in the right direction. But 
you never know. Sometimes if that defense is strong enough and that's his bread and butter, you could you could win ten games, nine or ten games, and somehow sneak into the playoffs, and then it's a whole new season. Indeed it is. Joe, you want to stick around for a minute and help me open up the fan forum this week? Absolutely. All right, we're going to open the fan forum right after this. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. This is the fan forum. All right, we are time to open up the fan forum. We're going to bounce around the NFL a little bit, do some recaps of the draft with teens fan bases. Joe D still on the line, still a Packers fan. Joe, did you like the introduction there at the new fan forum bump? Oh, I did like it. A little, uh, a little production, a, a little improvement since the last fan forum. Yeah, I got a little more creative with it. I did. I've been coming up with some mixes in my free time. Are the the, the quarantine creative juices flowing? They are flowing. I'm redesigning bumpers throughout this show, so there'll be more coming in the future. But for now, we'll talk some draft. We'll talk the Packers. And obviously, for a more detailed breakdown of Joe's thoughts on the Packers draft, you can check out the latest episode of his podcast, the Sharp Cheddar podcast. That was a 38th draft reaction. But I will ask you here, your reaction to Jordan Love being taken first round by Green Bay. I was stunned. Okay, I was stunned. Um, I'm still trying to focus and trying to find the right word to describe my emotions when it comes to this. And not only was I stunned that they drafted a quarterback, but I was, I was even more shocked that they traded up to get a quarterback. Like, all right, not only is it bad enough, we're using a first round pick, but now we're also getting up another pick in this draft that we could have added that for a playmaker to get this guy. And specifically to get a guy that's not going to see the field for, for years to come. I mean, it may be three, four, and possibly even five years before we even see Jordan Love play. So, I mean, again, the Green Bay Packers, this is a team that won 13 games, one win away from playing in the Super Bowl, and you're starting to think about the future. I don't agree with that philosophy at all. Yeah, that one was the absolute stunner of the draft. Cause I'm sitting there watching this, I'm like, what are they thinking here? I mean, like, they have so many needs. I thought when they were going, I'm like, oh, Patrick Queen, linebacker, fill the hole there. Oh, get a receiver. But nope, we're drafting our quarterback who may not ever play in his rookie contract if all goes according to plan. See, like, looking at the board, I, I didn't think they were moving up at that point to get a wide receiver. Um, I was fully convinced by the time the Eagles and by the time the Vikings picked that they were going to trade out and, and accumulate another second-round pick and a couple other picks, hopefully. Um, but then when they when they made the move and I saw Patrick Queen, I said, all right, here we go. We're going to be adding some depth. We're going to be adding some some serious talent right away, whether it be Patrick Queen or any of the offensive linemen that were available. I mean, this is completely shocking. Yeah, and the thing that boggles my mind is I think almost, I would say more than like any team aside from maybe the Jets, they, they pack it out of this draft in clear need of, we need a number two wide receiver. We need somebody to catch pass. I would say Devontae Adams. I just don't understand how in the deepest wide receiver draft in history, you walk out of this draft without any of them. So after listening to to the general manager speak and, and Matt LaFleur, Brian Gutenkus speak, here's what I gathered, and I somewhat agree with this philosophy. Let me start off by saying, though, you absolutely should have taken quarterback. Or, uh, excuse me, a wide receiver. You absolutely should have took a wide receiver. Um, but when you waited so long 
and now you're in rounds like five through seven because you don't have a fourth round pick, what are the odds that those guys are going to be able to compete with what you already have on the roster? You know, that's why the, the, the first pick, the foundation that they set kind of set the tone of the draft and pushed everything else back. I mean, I'm not saying you needed a wide receiver in the first round, but let's say you went Patrick Queen in, um, in round one, right? Then for round two, if you wanted to get your guy, maybe you pony up that fourth round pick to move up, and then maybe you get a Denzel with someone, you know, someone else. Um, I, I just thought because they, the approach that they had to this draft, by the time they realized, they said, you know what, it's not even worth trying to bring someone because that that wide receiver, there's a good chance he's not going to push not going to compete. I mean, look at how many wide receivers over the years that they've drafted late, especially now, right? I, I could rattle off a bunch of names who either they're making little impact, some impact maybe, or they're not even on the roster anymore. Yeah, that makes some sense. So if you were to give the Packers grade, draft a grade, what would you go with? So... I would probably have to give them a D, to be honest with you. I can't give them an F, you know, but I think here's what here's what I think. I think the AJ Dillon pick could potentially be be really helpful for this team. Again, another pick that was, you know, I understand getting a running back. I thought it was too early to get a running back, um, but you know, you look at the contracts. Aaron Jones is due. Jamal Williams is due next year. If Aaron Jones has the season that he has, uh, you know, they may not pay him because other guys got to get paid. So here you go. You're hopeful that AJ Dillon could be your guy. But even with talking this year, I'm kind of curious to see how much of AJ Dillon we see in terms of that thunder and lightning that you could get from Aaron Jones and his elusiveness and his quickness and the power runner that uh, that AJ Dillon AJ Dillon is. And then I think that you got um. You got some potential with the offensive lineman that you drafted. So I think, you know, John Runyon in particular, out of Michigan, him and A.J. Dillon really, you know, saved the draft. And, you know, the tight end that they ended up getting, who knows? Again, I wouldn't have done that in the third round considering, you know, he's an H-back. You could call him a fullback. You know, taking a fullback in the third round, I don't know. That doesn't sound so great, but he sounds like he – it looks like he's versatile. looks like he could – um bring a lot to the table and and is more of what Matt LaFleur is looking in his offense. So so who knows? I mean, all I'm saying is I hope uh, the guys that are getting paid a ton of money to make these decisions uh, are a lot smarter than I am. All right, there you have it, Joe. Thanks for all the time today. Really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people find on social media and keep up with the Shark Chatter podcast, including that full-on, let's say, 46-minute reaction to the Packers draft? So, you can, yeah, just follow me on Twitter at Joe double underscore. D-A-L-O-I-X-I-O. And all my episodes, I post them all there. You can listen on, uh, you know, several podcast platforms, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, whatever you like, whatever you have, we're on there. Yeah, and once again, folks, do not forget that double, as you won't find Joe. Don't forget the double underscore. Crucial. All right. All right. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate it. Mike, anytime, buddy. All right, we move from Green Bay to East Rutherford. We're talking New York Giants in the fan forum with the great Nick Freya. Nick, welcome. How are you? Hey, Mike. Uh, doing well, all things considered. Uh, how are you? 
doing pretty good. I'm sure you're pretty happy. You were on the podcast back in December, most famously for the Gary Cole prediction, but you also said at the time you thought the Giants would draft Andrew Thomas number four. That's exactly what happened. How do you feel about the pick now? I feel really good about it. I mean, this guy is a um, two-time All-American. He won the Jacobs blocking trophy last season. I mean, they needed an offensive tackle. They needed an offensive tackle for close to 10 years now, maybe more. And they picked one. He should be pretty good. I mean, there's no guarantee just because he was good in college to be good in the NFL. But he, he did everything he could do in college to prove that he's a great talent. So let's see if he can do it in the NFL. Yeah, indeed. We saw this draft. Dig Elman clearly looked after two areas. He said, I want to fix my offensive line. I need more hog mollies, and I need to address my secondary. Do you like how he deployed the resources there, or do you like to see the wealth spread out a little more? I actually like what he did. I mean, he kind of almost guaranteed he'll hit in those places. But, I mean, you know, this has been the criticism of Gettleman from the start. Is he, he went after the offensive line, and this is his third draft now. We were promised two years ago that he was going to fix the line. And here we are two years later picking two linemen in our first three picks. Yeah, and three in the first five. You count the guard from Oregon. Yeah. What do you think about the the secondary guys there? You have Xavier McKinney out of Alabama. You have Darnay Holmes out of UCLA in the fourth round. What do you think about those two guys? I like both the picks. I really really think he did a great job in this draft particular. And I think overall his time with the Giants has been pathetic. But I think this draft, that night, this past weekend, he did a great job. I have to give him credit for that. All right. So if you were to grade the giant draft, what would you grade it as? Uh, they didn't make any out-of-the-park out moves, but they did everything they were supposed to. So I can't give them less than like a B plus, you know? Yeah, I think when I was thinking about fans, I agree. They gave the Giants about a B. It sounds about right. I think they did a good job. They got what they needed done. I just, if it was me, I would have liked to see maybe a linebacker or an edge be more of a priority early, but I can't I can't hammer him too much for just attacking weaknesses very deeply. As much as I'd like to see them draft an edge rusher, you know, I did, there's a need for them. I'm more confused on what's going on with Golden and why they just let him go. He seemed to be the only player on the defense last year capable of playing in the NFL, and now he's gone. Yeah, well, that's a story for another day. Nick, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. All right, Mike, thank you. All right, we go from New York out to Los Angeles, back to the Chargers, back to the great Jersey Joe Arquino, who is on the fan forum once again. Jersey Joe, how are you? I'm doing well, my friend, and it is always good to be with you. And like I always say, I'm always so impressed with the work you do on this podcast. You pump it out constantly. You're always trying to do creative things, so you keep it up. You do an awesome job. Thank you for the compliments, sir. Let's talk about your team from it, the Chargers, who... They let Phillip Rivers go this offseason. They find his replacement. They draft Justin Herbert in the first round. Do you think he has what it takes to succeed out in L.A.? You know, I do. I, I think it's one of those situations where he probably isn't ready to play right away, which is fine because uh, having Tyrod Taylor there, you could definitely win with him. But when you are ready to plug him in, I mean, you talk about a guy who's got a lot of weapons to work with. A, a franchise that is still kind of growing in a new place. Um, he's kind of a West Coast guy, so I think there's a lot to like about him and the situation he landed in. Yeah, I mean, he's got a good setup there. I mean, he's got good weapons, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, good running game. He's got a good chance of success there. No, he really does. And, you know, one of the things I think you have to really like about him is he's obviously a really smart guy. 
and the resiliency is something I really like about him. I think, you know, he was a big, big, big name a couple of years ago, and then he struggled a little bit, but he finished his career at Oregon really strong. And I think that says a lot about him and how he is as a competitor. So I, I don't know if everywhere would have been the right fit for him, but I do think he did land in a place where he could really be equipped for some great success. Yeah, that was the expected pick. The unexpected one, obviously, they trade back into the first round, get Kenneth Murray out of Oklahoma. What do you think about that decision? Yeah, that one, I think, like most people, probably was a little bit of a surprise. But, I mean, Tom Telesco is a great GM. He's, he's had a very good track record the last few years with players that, that have just turned out to be absolute stars for the Chargers, especially on the defensive side of the ball. So if he saw something that he really liked in him, I'm not one to second-guess it. And I, I think the track record of the guys that they built up on that defense speaks for itself. Yeah, indeed. So what would you grade the Chargers graph on a, on a scale of A to F? Yeah, you know, that was kind of a tough thing. I, I've seen a lot of different people giving a lot of different answers. I you know, I think I'd probably go with a B, somewhere a B, B-plus range. Um, obviously, you know, Phillip Rivers, moving on from him was huge. I think getting the quarterback, if you, you I mean, it's like any team. If you see a guy you think is your quarterback of the future, you do whatever you have to to get him, and they did that. And I think that was the most important thing. And they picked up a lot of guys to kind of add even more depth to the offense. They added a lot of some other pieces to add to the defense. So, no, I think it was strong all around. They've obviously, all the teams in their division, I think, have gotten better too. So it's very difficult. They're in a tough spot, obviously, with the Super Bowl champs in their division. So, it's not easy in the AFC West by any means, but I do think that they, they come out of this a better football team. Yes, they do come out of a better football team. I like them as well. I gave them a top 10 rating and my fan side team teams that crossed the draft. They were in there. Thanks for the time, Jerry. Before I let you go, how people find you on social media if they want to keep up with some of the stuff you're up to. Sure. Thanks again for having me on. You keep up all the great work. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Archino and also on Instagram, Jersey underscore Joe underscore Archino. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mike. Keep up the great work, my friend. All right. We are on the fan forum. We are going over to the Tennessee Titans, runners-up in the AFC last year. Join me again to break down the Titans pick, the great Joe Choppy. Joe, welcome. How are you? Uh, Great. Now I'm flattered, but I'm good. Glad to have you here. And Titans make an interesting pick at the end of the first round. They take the tackle Isaiah Wilson at the end of the first round. The idea here is he's replacing Jack Conklin at right tackle, right? Yeah, I'm still very surprised Conklin would let go. Um, you know, Tennessee really found success at the end of last season with Ryan Tannehill and obviously with Derrick Henry in the run game. And I don't think you can overstate the importance of the offensive line. Um, I know Tannehill one's very good, but I, I think losing Conklin is a big loss. I don't think. Hopefully, Wilson can fill it, but I'm very stunned they let him walk. I'm pretty sure it was Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, I'm very surprised where Thompson go. Uh, to me, he's a guy you keep. Um, and hopefully, this doesn't backfire on them because, you know, there's, there's nothing more important than your two lines in the NFL. And, uh, you know, Tennessee letting a big part of their offensive line go is a big risk. Yeah, it was a big risk. You guys go to Cleveland. I think it was this case where they had to allocate the money. They chose the quarterback and the running back. It's understandable. But they were pretty busy. Right. They do have to make a bunch of picks on day two. Which of those guys do you think is more likely to contribute right away? Well, the thing that was very interesting to me is one of their other big losses was Jarrell Casey. They traded with him to the Denver Broncos. 
And they didn't take a defensive lineman until the fifth round. They took the kid uh, Morrell from NC State. Um, so I'm hoping, um, you know, Evans can be a nice running back with Appalachian State, kind of a more of a speed guy to compare to the, the ground and pound of Derrick Henry. Um, I was very surprised Tennessee did not dress the defensive line a little bit sooner um, because just like they lost Conklin, Darrell Casey has been with the Titans since forever, it seems, at this point. And he's really a guy that's been a leader on that defense. And to not address the offensive round, obviously they had no fourth-round pick. Uh, they went with the cornerback in the second round. I was convinced on that third-round pick they were going to go line there um, to fill that void of Casey. You know, hopefully uh, the tricky Fulton from LSU can help, you know, the secondary because given how prolific passing is in the NFL, got to have a good secondary, of course. But uh, I'm very surprised, kind of like how the surprised let Tonkin go. I'm surprised it still Casey's void earlier. Yeah, it makes some sense. So what would you grade the Titans draft class as? You know what? I, I would go somewhere like a B. I, I think Wil- Wilson's an obvious pick. Um, you know, you, you lose your offensive line, you draft offensive linemen. Um, you know, LSU is a very good team, obviously. Take the cornerback from there. You hope he can contribute right away. Help the secondary. I'm still a little baffled that they went running back over defensive line in the third just because it's not really an area of need. If you want to talk about where the Titans don't need help, I would say running back. I think it's the easiest pick. Now, Derrick Henry has established himself as a, as a number one running back in the NFL. Um, is it a bad idea to take the change of pace back with him? Of course not. Now, Deion Lewis left uh, over the offseason. They cut him. So they regret that running back. I get it. But I really would have liked someone on the defensive line, even if it was a linebacker to help the pass rush there in the third round. And to wait for the fifth round to do that, to me, was a little head-scratching. All right, there you have it. Joe Chaffee on the Titans. Joe, if you want to keep, keep up with you on social media, how can they do that? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at J underscore Chaffee, C-I-O-F-F-I. There's a, there's a lovely picture of me uh, and my good friend Brenda Ahern's wedding as a profile picture. So that's how you know how to find me. All right, there you have it. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Mike. All right, on from Tennessee to Philadelphia with my favorite Eagles fan, Kevin Walsh Jr. from Sports Grid. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing good, Mike. I'm uh, I'm I'm doing well, man. Uh, the draft was fun. The draft was a lot of fun. It was things felt very normal for me during the NFL draft because it's you know I'm not someone that is out and about 24 seven. I mean, I have a day job, so you know, kind of just being home and watching sports is very comforting for me. It's, you know, with obviously the world we live in. There's no games on, so it, you know you you feel it a lot more. But I, I tell you, especially Thursday, like just waking up and kind of doing some prep for the draft, and I, I mean it felt like such a normal day. And you know now kind of the the it's, it's it's gone back away. It's like oh I need I need more, but I'm doing well, man. Yeah, I'm doing well. I mean, I was right there with you. I was getting ready to have Roger Goodell be a bedtime story by the end of Friday night, but. <laughs> Uh, Big Rod was comfy, man. Uh, he, he, he was looking good. Yeah, he was looking good. Your Eagles look good in the first round. You got Jalen Rieger in the first round over Justin Jefferson. So you like that pick for a team that needs a receiver badly. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a pick that caught a lot of people off guard, Eagles fans included. And I think one of the things, you know, we all read mock drafts, whether you're somebody who reads it for the purpose of betting, uh, you want to, you know, you love the draft or, as a lot of people, you just you go through 10 of them and you just, you know, tab down, where's my team, and you see who you get. 
And the Eagles paired to Justin Jefferson was a combo that was, you could see in, in you know, eight out of 10 mocks. It, it was constant. So I saw, you know, Rieger's name come across the screen and it caught me by surprise because Justin Jefferson was still on the board. But, you know, you, you then kind of dive more into the pick and, you know, you start to see that it made a lot of sense. And, and one person uh, kind of put it as the Eagles are better suited for Jalen Rieger and the Vikings, who then took Justin Jefferson, are better suited for Justin Jefferson. I'm excited about what Rieger can bring to this team. He, he is a great, great speedster, can really take the top off of the defense. And I love Deshaun Jackson, but you cannot rely on him to be the only guy that can do that on your football team because him playing 16 games is just not realistic. Yeah, it's not, and I will say they also made the second most baffling quarterback choice this draft, taking Jalen Hurts in round two. What was your what do you, what do you think the plan is here? Like, why go that direction? So it's it's very very funny. Um, I'm assuming the first you're alluding to is is Jordan Love, right? Correct. So the Jordan Love thing, as it's I would say, right, it's probably less baffling and more infuriating if you were a Green Bay Packer fan. Because that was a team that was in the NFC Championship game last year. Rodgers is not on the cusp of being gone. Nevertheless, though, it's it's you know okay. They think Love takes over for Rodgers. We get it. With the Eagles, Carson Wentz just got paid. Is in the prime of his career now. Like just it's beginning, probably the prime of his quarterback uh, quarterback career. And you see Jalen Hurts come off the board. And I don't think I've ever been that surprised by a draft pick in my life. Uh, I mean, I texted you, you know, as it went off the board, Martino, and I mean, I was infuriated because I'm very protective over Carson Wentz because to me, I think he is he's really underrated. And I think the conversation around Carson Wentz is, is one that is, doesn't really appreciate him for the talent that he is. So my instant reaction was I can't believe this, but I've had a lot more time to marinate on this pick, and I think I've I think I've kind of come all the way around on it. I, I think the Eagles have, might have done something pretty unique here and pretty interesting. Yeah, why? What's your opinion here? You think it's just more of like, oh, he's be a Taysom Hill player? Is he be like a backup quarterback? And wave Wentz gets hurt again, you guys don't just completely tank the season like what happened in the playoff game. What's the rationale you feel like? So I think this is, and, and it's something. Um, that I've, I've had conversations about this with people for a while now, um, but never really on air. So I'm kind of glad because this is kind of giving me the opportunity to give my take, but I also like bouncing it off other people. And it is this idea, right? That everybody knows quarterback is the most important position in the entire sport. And there's a 53 man roster and you build up this, you know, all year, all year, big aspirations for a team. We can make the Super Bowl. We can make the playoffs. We can win our division, whatever it might be. But you allow that all to rest on one player, despite the fact that you're completely aware, like, aware of the importance of the position. And I've always felt like teams have really undervalued the backup quarterback position. Why teams are so comfortable basically saying, yeah, we're not good at quarter. Like, if, if player Y goes down because I didn't want to say a name, we're completely screwed. And I think the Philadelphia Eagles, being the team that benefited from a backup quarterback being ready to go to the point to where they won a Super Bowl, are, for, are maybe a more forward-thinking team and understanding the actual value 
of a backup quarterback. And it's not just in having a good one. There's also financial value. Chase Daniels making over $4 million this year to be the backup quarterback for the Lions. If anything happens to Matt Stafford, we know they're screwed. Chase Daniels is not good. He was once the Eagles' backup quarterback. He's been the backup quarterback for years, and teams keep signing him to be their backup quarterback. None of them think he's good, but he keeps getting money, and it's wild. Jalen Hurts is a – I think I would rather Jalen Hurts is my backup quarterback than Chase Daniels, and he won't even come near a million dollars in terms of a cap hit this year. So he is four times cheaper than Chase Daniels, can bring you more. And then where this pick kind of goes over the top for me, Mike, is Jalen Hurts does have a skill set that can allow him to come on the field, not just if Carson Wentz goes down. I think that the Eagles will be able to be creative enough to get Hurts on. I don't think he is pace on Hill. Hill is more of a runner and a, like a runner in terms of a running back and a receiver in terms of a receiver than Jalen Hurts is at either of those positions. Jalen Hurts is a quarterback, but his athleticism, and I think the Eagles offense can find ways to where they'll still get him on the field. But really the thing for me here is valuing the backup quarterback position, which I'm okay with, especially because Carson Wentz has gone down now, you know, multiple seasons in a row. Yeah, I like that logic. I think it makes a lot of sense. So if you were to grade the Eagle draft, what would you give it? So, uh, I, you know, I've been, I've been actually doing uh, NFC draft grades uh, over here at the Sports Grid. Those videos are going to be start uh, popping up soon. So it's actually a nice little sneak peek preview. But I, I gave them an A. I, and part of this is I've decided to pass on the minus and plus rating scale. I think it's almost somewhat uh, of a cop-out. Like, you either get an A, a B, C, D. I, I don't, I'm not going to give anybody an F. I'm not going to be that harsh of a grader. They got an A. It's closer to a B than an A+. plus. Overall, I think the Rieger pick, uh, Rieger pick fits well. I think that the Jalen Hurts selection is a forward-thinking move that I like. And then they got players like Davion Taylor um, and Wallace, you know, out of, out of Clemson, that really, you know, it's funny. They're not Isaiah Simmons because Isaiah Simmons is special. But the more you go through this draft, you see that there are guys that do play all over the place. They can come in and line up in the slot, get closer to the line of scrimmage, a little bit of linebacker, a little bit of safety. And if teams become more open to that idea because of Isaiah Simmons, I think that's a good thing. And I think that's something that we saw with the Eagles throughout their draft. And then taking a number of swings down in the back end of the round uh, at the wide receiver position is something I was really pleased with. Uh, I gave him an A. I respect that. I think it's a good grade. Kevin, thanks for all the time. People want to keep up with you on the sports grade and find on social media. How can they do that? Yeah, I'm over at the Kevin Walsh uh, on Twitter and then follow us over uh, at sports grade. Keep up everything uh, that we're doing, man. There's content coming out daily, fresh reacting to the biggest news uh, that is coming out in the sports world. So check us out over on sports grid uh, and follow me over on Twitter at the Kevin Walsh. All right, Kev. Thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it, Mike. Anytime. All right, moving from the Eagles in the Fan Forum to the Indianapolis Colts, a late addition to the Fan Forum, joined by the podcast resident Colts fan, Dan Martini. Dan, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. And I got to say, I brought them in after I saw the Colts made some interesting choices in the second round. They did not have a first round. They traded for DeForest Buckner, but they used their two second round picks on skeleton players, Michael Pittman, Jonathan Taylor. I like both of them. How do you think they're going to be using that offense? It's going to be really interesting. Um, you know, the Colts 
philosophically realized in this offseason that with just one or two injuries last year, they had basically nothing in terms of, um, you know, skill position threats, guys that can, you know, score points and make things easy for the, for the defense because they're going to be playing with a lead. So looking at Michael Pittman, obviously, you know, he's a big 6'4", you know, 230-pound-plus guy, you know, with over 100 catches only two drops. Uh, this is the, exactly the guy that the Colts needed. It's been forever since they've had a reliable, tall receiver to play and take some pressure off of T.Y. Hilton. You know, Hilton is going to be 30, 31 years old this season. You know, he's coming off a year where he missed four or five games with an injury. He had a nagging foot and, and leg injury almost the entire season. And when he went down, I mean, it, it's pretty pathetic. If you look at what the Colts have at the wide receiver core, Zach Pascal, an undrafted free agent, um, led the team in receiving yards, and that was only 607 total yards. That led the team. That's not good. And only 41 receptions. So it's not Zach Pascal's fault. But when T.Y. Hilton went down and Devin Funches, you know, basically lost the entire year, he only played one game, they had nothing. So we knew going into the draft that they needed to find two to three playmakers, um, and and they definitely did that. And and so I definitely love Michael Pittman. He's a guy that's going to Philip Rivers. We all know loves tall wide receivers. Um, you know he had Mike Williams out there. Um, they love to chuck the ball up in the air, and that's something that I'm excited to watch. I don't care if this Philip Rivers experiment go, goes poorly and the team doesn't win this year but I am really excited just to see somebody take a shot down the field. Nothing against Jacoby Brissett, but the guy just was afraid to make those passes. And we all know that Rivers is going to, we're going to win some games because he's not afraid to put it up in the air and give his receiver a chance. Pittman is going to love having Rivers as a guy thrown to him. And, um, and, and the, you know, obviously the second pick here that I really like uh, is Jonathan Taylor. Here's a guy that's a perfect compliment to Marlon Mack. You know, not only is Marlon Mack in a contract year, and the Colts have already said that they're not interested in extending him. He's a guy who, yes, he ran for a thousand yards last year, um, but you know, he also had hand surgery middle of the season. And the Colts team is built to run the football. Philip Rivers is going to have a clean pocket, but the point is that we're going to pound the football and then take our shots deep. And we did that with Pittman on the outside. And now Jonathan Taylor, a guy who's proven that, you know, he can handle being a lead back in his league. He's not going to be asked to do that right away. I can see him getting maybe 13, 14 carries a game. It's still Marlon Mack's team. But imagine how Frank Reich and Nick Sirianni, our offensive coordinator, are going to use a guy like Taylor and a guy like Marlon Mack on the field at the same time you're not sure whether they're going to throw a swing pass, run it up the middle, hand it off to Mack up the middle. I mean, they can do so much when you've got two very different style running backs now. And the Colts didn't have anything when Marlon Mack went down. I don't know if you guys remember, but fantasy last year, one of the hottest pickups midseason was a guy named Jonathan Williams, a fifth-round pick the Colts kind of signed you know, in the offseason going into last year. He ran for back-to-back games of over 100 yards. And this is a no-name guy. Um, you know, he ran all over the Jags and the Texans last year, and now he's disappeared. So we, it doesn't matter who your name is on the back of your jersey. The Colts have the established run game situation. 
So getting a guy like Jonathan Taylor is saying not only are we thinking about life after Marlon Mack, but we're also saying we are committing to a ground game. Um, you don't spend a second-round pick on a guy, especially running back nowadays, unless, you, unless you're going to give him the football. So, you know, people are worried that he had too many touches at Wisconsin. My issues with that comment is that what's the difference between a touch and a tackle? That's where my definition is. Jonathan Taylor, yeah, he had a lot of touches, but Wisconsin had a pretty darn good line. He didn't get hit that much. So you're just basically telling me, you know, that Jonathan Taylor, he's had too many touches. Well, I don't believe that. I think about the damage that a running back takes because they're running with a bad offensive line. See Le'Veon Bell last year. You know, Jonathan Taylor, yeah, he had the ball a lot in his hands, but he didn't hit that much. So I'm okay with him having as many touches and, and runs last year as, as, as the criticism uh, that he's receiving, you know, and the Colts are receiving for taking him. I think this is a guy who's shown that he's not afraid to, to carry the rock and, and lead a team. So I love those two guys, and I love what they're doing. Yeah, I love both those picks. I also think the interesting pick they made, they get Jacob Eason in the fourth round. He slides a little bit, and you think this is a guy they say, you know what, maybe he can be our guy in a year or two because both Brissett and Rivers may not be here after this season. It's a win-win for us, right? Here's a guy who throws arguably the nicest deep ball in all of college football last year. Everybody knows he's got a cannon for an arm, which is exactly what the Colts want to do. They want to run the football, take their shots down the field. Jacob Eason, his, the, the downside to him, people don't think that he loves football that much. People don't think that he takes it that seriously. There's some maturity issues there. But I look at the guy. I've been watching the Colts do this lead-up series every year to the draft um, called With the Next Pick. And one episode strictly focuses on the Colts' interview process. They weed out guys. They take them off the board. It doesn't matter how talented they are. If there's something in their DNA, their personality characteristics that they don't like. If Jacob Eason was truly going to be an issue for this team and the team chemistry um, on the Colts and in the locker room, they would not have taken him. I trust Ballard. This is the first time I you know, have ever really in my entire lifetime said a GM of, my, of a team that I support, I trust every move he's making until he proves me completely wrong. So I love the fact that they're taking a chance on him. He gets to learn from another guy who doesn't care what happens when the ball is up in the air. He's going to take the shot. He's going to play with a little bit of fire. Um, he can learn a lot from Phillip Rivers in a year or two. And if he doesn't work out, it was a fourth-round pick. Who really cares about what happens to a fourth-round pick if it doesn't work out, right? I mean, all I can say is he slid into the fourth. It made a lot of sense. The talent is there. Can Frank Wright, who we all know is kind of a quarterback guru, um, can he mold Eason into the next quarterback? If he does, awesome. Here we go. Here's a guy who can be an exciting guy, wants to step up. Um, He's going to have a clean pocket. I can tell you that for at least the next five, six years with the guys we've signed to the offensive line and who we keep adding a running a team that supports the running game. So he doesn't have to worry about throwing it 50 times a game, but when he needs to throw, the dude has the talent to do it. So why not? I love that pick. Uh, A couple other little picks late, you know, the Colts obviously have had some issues on special teams. They took a kid out of Michigan, Jordan Glasgow, who was a linebacker in the sixth round, who, is basically just a special teams guy. 
Um, and they, they took even, even though they, they got DeForest Buckner and Sheldon Day in the offseason, they took another defensive tackle out of Penn State, Rob Windsor, who's kind of a maniac guy, just plays with a super high motor to put pressure on the other interior defensive linemen who really hurt us last year. The Colts defense was bad because their defense is based around generating pressure up the middle and putting, you know, obviously attacking the quarterback and forcing him out of the pocket. And we didn't do that at all. So the, Chris Ballard made it very clear. He signed three interior linemen, two, two linemen in the offseason, one during the draft, and said, these are the guys that we're going forward with, and they're going to set the tone. So just overall really, really happy with everything that they've done. And, um, you know, I'm really excited to see this experiment. This, this kind of feels like, you know, when you lose Andrew Luck and you're, you're, you kind of collapse, and you're putting, you know, some organizations would have just slapped a Band-Aid on, on everything. But I love the fact that we went from 7-9 and nine to kind of like, okay, you know, we're still, maybe next year we do another year with Brissett. Maybe he gets a little, no, we said, Brissett, you're sitting on the bench. We're going to take a chance at Phillip Rivers. We're going to trade a first-round pick for a, a great young interior pass rusher. We're going to draft a wide receiver and a running back and we're going to throw everything we've got and we're going to try to win the AFC South this year and make a run in the playoffs. I mean, how can you not love that? Most teams would have just mailed it in and said, let's tank for Trevor Lawrence. But here we are, you know, all the projections are saying we've got a really chance, a chance to, to fight the Titans for the division. Yeah, I would agree with that. What would you give the, the uh, grade for the draft as from an A to F scale? I would say going into the draft, I told myself I would be happy as long as they drafted at least one receiver, which they did. They took two receivers. The other guy they took, Desmond Patman, played for Washington State. He's another guy who's six foot five, two hundred and thirty-five pounds. So they drafted two guys taller than six four, which never happens, uh, which is really cool. And I'm curious to see how that works out. But I said if they took at least one receiver. And they added a member of the, the in the secondary, which they did with their third round pick. They took a guy who can play a little bit of safety, maybe a little bit of corner, and Julian Blackman from Utah. So that's all I wanted, and they got it. So I, how can you not give them an A? I'm not going to give them an A plus because they didn't. I thought there was a chance there that they were going to move back up into the first round and do something really shocking, maybe take a pass rusher or. Uh, you know, take one of the corners that may have still been sitting there, but they held Pat and they took Michael Pittman, which I'm thrilled with. So I'm going to give them an A for this draft. All the analysts that I've looked at have all said the same thing that, you know, they feel that these were interesting additions to now really change the dynamics on the team. No longer are you going to see a wide receiving core of Zach Pascal on one side, Chester Rogers who's a free agent that nobody's really interested in, you know, an aged Dontrell Inman uh, and, and, you know, Jack Doyle, like that's not good enough to win in the NFL. So they've made adjustments and I'm, I'm thrilled. I would be too. Dan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media? Keep on some of the stuff you're up to. Sure. I've been actually a little bit more active on Twitter. I'm at, at out of town fan pod on Twitter. Um, and you know, right now it's 
this was just a really exciting to, to get some football action again. So watching all the college film, I was really excited. I made some comments. Um, there are a lot of people out there that want to take shots at your team. And I love going on Twitter and screenshotting and then holding people accountable. So this is my favorite time of the year. People make ballsy statements. Let's see how it plays out six months from now. So really excited and uh, go Colts. Yeah, and have fun. Hopefully we'll talk more. We'll talk to more soon, Dan. You'll be on this podcast again in a couple of weeks. Yeah, sounds good. Talk to you then. All right, we are back here in the fan forum, flying south to Miami, to the Dolphins for the first time on this podcast. And one of my good buddies from high school, first time on this podcast, Andy Dispenza is here. Andy, how are you? Mike, I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Our problem. Andy's here. Andy's a big Miami Dolphins fan, and they made the pick of the draft. They tanked for Tua Tagovailoa. Did not quite work, but he still falls number five. How do you feel about that choice? So I have to say I feel pretty good about getting Tua at five. As you know, and as a Dolphins fan, we have had so much bad luck with quarterbacks since Marino. Nobody even... Uh, I mean, besides Chad Pennington, who took us to our only playoff win in the past 20 years, nobody has been able to do the job. So I figure, why not take a risk on a guy who, before his injury, was more or less the number one pick? Um, I will say that I, I don't follow college as closely as I follow the NFL. But, I mean, there seems to be a lot of hype surrounding this guy, and uh, I'm I'm interested to see what he can do. Yeah, I think there's no doubt in terms of ability that, like, if he can stay on the field, he has a chance to be very, very, very good. But the thing with him that's scary is just, like, he has so many injuries. He has he had a pair of ankle surgeries, had a hip surgery. With him, it's just a matter of, like, if you can keep him upright, he'd be good, but that's the risk. Right. See, in my mind, I'm thinking, like, is he going to succeed and be more of a Russell Wilson or is he going to be an RG three and be plagued by injuries in his career and fizzle out? So I'm, I'm really hoping that he can stay healthy. Yeah. Miami clearly is. And Miami did a very smart thing in this draft. They took three offensive linemen. They want to try to fortify that front in line, that front five in front of him. So you think that strategy to pay off, but they got enough quality guys in there, you know, try and build that line and keep him healthy. Well, I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. Uh, I know Austin Jackson, who they took at 18, I kept hearing that they really reached for him and they could have maybe got him in the second round, um, that he's a fine offensive lineman, but just don't exactly know uh, definitively about him. Uh, I'm, I'm happy that they got a couple linemen because we are definitely in need of help on the line for sure and have been for quite some time. Um, of course, losing Laramie Tunsil last year also to the Texans hurt us. But, yeah, we need someone to – if we can protect him, like the Pats protect Brady, and he can just be healthy, then, hey, guy's the limit. So I, I trust these new guys who are from the Patriots system, you know, Flores and Chris Greer, who have come in and kind of taken over Dolphins culture and, and the organization. So I'm, I'm putting my trust in them completely. Yeah, they did have some good results towards the end of last year. Couldn't that big win up in New England? How would you grade the Miami draft? I would give it an A-. I think Tua was, was great. 
Well, what do you? I want to hear your opinion first, Mike. I thought you did a very good job in this draft, to be honest with you, because you would you would raise it to an A. You think? I think they did a very good job. I mean, they they got their quarterback, they have to trade out to get him, which was also encouraging. You got to get needs filled on the line. You get some depth throughout your roster, and this team should be a lot more competitive going forward. No, I'm going to remove my A minus, and I'm going to put A because I'm I'm really not too certain. I don't have a de- I don't have a definitive answer for you. I'm going to put a question mark, but a big positive question mark. That's an interesting way to grade. I think that's fair because at this point, who really knows what their team is like? A team's draft, like we're all killing the Packers. Whatever we know, they could have had the, found the next superstar quarterback without us knowing it. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with you on that. All right, Andy, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, do you have anything you want to plug on social media? And I know you also have a podcast of your own you, that you started recently. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah, I just want to say thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Uh, it's great catching up and great talking with you. Uh, yeah, me and our good uh, high school friend as well, Justin, do have a podcast that comes out every Tuesday night called the Paul Giamatti School of Hard Knocks. You can find us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Yeah, it's a fun listen. The great Justin Diaz has been on many rants on this podcast. So if you like him, you can find more of him on there. Do you have a person? Do you have a Twitter account that you want to follow, us to follow, Andy? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, my Instagram, my Twitter, uh, my Instagram is a dispensa, like my first letter of my first name and my last name, and Twitter is Andy D Tweets. All right, Andy. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. All right, thanks, Mike. You too. All right, going across the state of Florida to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, another new voice of the podcast, somebody I've gotten to know recently, Charlie Borges. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing good, Mike. How are you? Doing pretty good. You are a big Buccaneers fan. And before we get into the draft, I have to ask you, thoughts on the Tom Brady situation? Uh, well, for starters, it's great to have somebody like Tom Brady, a proven winner. Come into a franchise who hasn't won anything since 2002 or 2003, whatever, whichever year they won the Super Bowl. Um, they have one of the largest, biggest playoff droughts in the NFL right now. So it's nice to have somebody like Tom Brady come in and uh, try to change the franchise. But I would, I would have rather have kept Jameis Winston instead of bringing in Tom Brady because I can see the Buccaneers kind of going in like all in for a Super Bowl in the next one or two years in this window that Tom Brady has given them. And then where are you going to go? You don't really have a, a backup quarterback. You have, um, I think, Blaine Gabbert is their backup quarterback. I could be wrong, but even if it's not Blaine Gabbert, it's somebody who's along those lines who is just not going to do it. So I'm excited to see what he can do in the short term, but I'm worried about what's going to happen in the long term. That's a very fair point. Him and Gronk will be fun next year, but we'll talk about the draft today. The Buccaneers, obviously, with Brady there, make the decision to trade up one slot, get Tristan Wirfs out of Iowa there. So how important was it for them to get that right tackle and protect Tom Brady? Uh, it, it was absolutely crucial. Um, Tom Brady's in the latter stages of his career. He hasn't been as good as he once was under pressure, I believe he was one of the worst quarterbacks under pressure uh, of all the quarterbacks last season. Uh, so getting a guy like Tristan Wirfs come in and be able to just plug him in to from wherever everybody is talking about this guy, this kid can play immediately. He's not going to 
take a year. He's not going to take a couple weeks. He's ready to go. You can immediately just pull him in. Um, they already have a, a solid center and a solid uh, other guard, I believe. Uh, Ali Marpet is another guard. I think they may move him to tackle. I don't know. Um, Ryan Jensen as a center. You know, there's a solid big three right there. Um, left tackle kind of up in the air right now. Um, I believe DeMar Dawson is the left tackle. He's kind of hit or miss. So to have a guy to come in as young as Tristan Wirfs to be a nice complimentary piece with Marfette and Jensen, it's a, the blueprint's right there. Yes, the blueprint is right there. And they also made a legacy pick the second round. They get Antoine Whitfield Jr. out of Florida State. His dad played against Brady back in the day, picked him off a couple times, the Vikings and the Bills. So how is he going to help the secondary Antoine Whitfield Jr.? Uh, he's going to do a lot. Um, I know they last year they drafted Justin Evans out of Texas A&M. Um, so I can see them having a Winfield-Evans kind of secondary uh, safety combo that will suit them well for the future. Um, Evans did a pretty good job last year. Not eye-popping numbers, but he did a fair enough job. And according to Mel Kuyper, apparently Winfield can play whatever you need him to. So to have a Swiss Army knife like Winfield come in and try to bring back the defensive shutdown mentality that the Buccaneers used to have under Monty Kiffin, uh, it, it's a good feeling to be a Buck fan, to have somebody like that come in, especially as young as he is. The secondary should be set for, for a long time. Yeah, it's a good time to be a Buck fan. And what would you give the grade for the Buck draft this year? Um. You see, that's, that's a hard question because that could always change. Right now, I would probably give them a C plus. Um, but in the future, hopefully, I, they'll make me eat my words. I'll give the the Wirfs and Winfield. I'll give those uh, A and A minus. Um, a few other picks kind of confuse me. Uh, Tyler Johnson out of Minnesota. Um, I know he's been great for the Golden Gophers as a wide receiver, but as a fifth round pick they already have enough wide receivers. They have Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. And you also have Rob Gronkowski. You also have OJ Howard and Cameron Brake. Uh, there's only one ball to go around and doesn't seem like he's going to be helping at all for the future. And I, I know Jacob Fromm, the quarterback from Georgia, he was there before or when uh, they took Tyler Johnson in the, fifth, in the fifth round. Who knows what Fromm's going to turn out to be. But if you're the Buccaneers and have a 42-year-old quarterback, you got to be looking to the future. You can't just have that uh, win now mentality. You got to think about what you're going to see for the future. So, other, I do like the Wirfs and Winfield and Kashawn Vaughn, the running back from Vanderbilt. We have Ronald Jones, Payton Barber. So, we have a lot of running backs that can run the ball, but can they do it effectively? One of the run game wasn't as good as it should have been last season. So, it's, it's kind of all over the place, but. Overall, I'd give him a C plus. All right, that's fair. Charlie Board is here talking Buccaneers. Charlie, before I let you go, you want to let people know how to find on social media and keep out some of the stuff you're up to? Um, I do write for Pucks and Pitchforks <clears throat> over at Fansided. Have a couple articles coming out in the next few days. Do you want to give that a shout? That's a blog dedicated to the New Jersey Devils, which I'm a huge fan of. That's pretty much all I'm doing. Just trying, just trying to stay sane, and uh, hopefully, sports can come back soon. Hopefully. And do do you have a Twitter account you want people to follow? Uh, I am at Charlie Borges Jr. on Twitter. Uh, all I pretty much is tweet about sports and 
people call me an old man because I have old man mentality. All right. There you have it, Charlie. Thanks. Not a problem, Mike. Thank you. All right. We are heading back to East Rutherford, New Jersey, talking New York Jets draft with the unofficial co-host of this podcast, Will Schneiderhand. Will, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Doing pretty good. And we've talked offline about a lot of these things. So let's bring it online here. The Jets got a good draft, I think. They grabbed Mekhi Becton first round. How big of an impact do you think he's going to have right out of the gate for that offensive line? Uh, well, big, literally and figuratively, right? Uh, <laughs> guys, wait, what did you, you called him, what, Mount Becton on draft night when we took him? I think that's awesome, an awesome nickname for him. But, um, yeah, I mean, just as as we are watching it, you know, in our group text, you and I, our friend Martino, we're shooting back and forth, just, you know, which tackle are we going to get? Which tackle are we going to get? And um, it came down to what, Werfs and Beckton. And, you know, I think Werfs was, I think Werfs is more like the consensus, what, kind of like pro ready, where Beckton's a little bit raw, but like, it's not like, or if raw is a word, more raw. But um, Beckton is like, it's not like he can't play, you know? Like, yeah, he's a little raw in the fact that like, he needs a little more experience, but this dude's going to be a beast, I think. I mean, this is exactly what the Jets needed. This is what Douglas needed. This is what Darnold needed. You know, Gase, everybody, everybody on the Jets needed this. You need an impact offensive lineman because it's going to go, I mean, miles. going to do so many things for your, your quarterback and your offense. Yeah, I mean, we saw the video of him pushing the truck to work out. I'm like, this is awesome. I wanted this dude. I'm very happy they got him. And, I mean, I also was happy to see Joe Douglas wheeling and dealing during the draft. So, yeah. how do you think he did with his maneuverings? Well, you know, as you're watching the second round, you know, at first you're like, what the heck? Why are we trading back? You know, like we got Mims right there. I think Claypool was still on the board. Uh, and he traded back, got more assets, still got his guy. So, I mean, it, that's kind of like how you draw it up. Um, you know, I thought he had a we, – we have not seen in years. I mean, even when like Idzik and them were here. Like, like, like we have not seen a guy who has, has played the draft this calm, this cool – and like he's obviously Douglas obviously had an ear on what was going on, you know. Like it's not like he just woke up and drafted like like you sometimes thought McCagnan did. Um, but I just thought it was just it was, it was very reassuring just to watch him work. You know what I mean? I I don't think I really questioned him. We never really. I mean, maybe like I said with the wide receiver thing, I was a little like, hmm, I wonder where he's going here. But it wasn't. Oh my God, what the hell is he doing? This guy's an idiot. You know what I mean? So I, I was very happy and just honestly confident in what he did. I mean, he, he, he did everything the right way. Yeah, I agree with that because I love watching him work. I mean, there were some questions you could raise. You could say maybe to take the right edge rusher in the third round, maybe take a second receiver instead of grabbing the quarterback in the fourth round. But I'm, I'm okay with what he did. How would you grade the jet draft? Um, it's, I'm not, you know, <laughs> it's so hard to give a bad grade to anybody who drafted. If you are not the Packers or the Eagles, um, I think, though, being completely, like, non-biased, I would say, like, a B-plus just because I don't want to go A, just because I feel like there's a lot of, you know, these are, there's still some guys here where it could either go one way or the other, but I'm leaning more towards it go it will be an A soon, you know, because, like, he drafted all these guys who were captains, all these guys who are hungry. I know they call, uh, I think he said when they called, was it Mims or Hall, he said, there was like a report that uh, the player was 
less happy than he was, and he was more pissed off that people passed on it. I think it was Mims. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I love that. Like, that's a good sign. Um, so I'm going to give it a B plus because I think he, you get your you get Beckton, you go get your receiver in the second, you fill a lot of holes, you get value picks with Hall. Um, you know, I, I just thought up and down, it's really hard to find anything wrong with this draft, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Plus, as we learned late in the draft, according to Mel Kuyper, the Jets made this draft next Shane Weckler, so it's hard to argue with that. Oh, yeah, you know, it's funny. that's one of those funny things, right? Like, what? you Like, the Patriots drafted a kicker, you drafted a punter? Like, yeah, you have to. These are guys who still have to be on the roster because special teams is huge. So, yeah, I mean, that's another one. Like, I, I never, I don't think we ever would have saw that in past regime. We would have been swinging and missing with the Jakai Polites and so on. Yeah, I'm very happy we're not taking interior defensive linemen for about the 15th year in a row. That's <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> yeah, I've had enough of those for a lifetime. Will, thanks for hopping on. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media? Keep on some of the stuff you've been doing over at Fansided. Oh yeah, so I'm at Will Schneider H1 S C H N E I D E R H1 on Twitter, and uh, yeah, that just. Follow me on there. I've actually been watching a lot of Photoshop tutorials. So, hey, we'll see what that leads to. And, uh, yeah, a lot of draft stuff uh, being pumped out on fan-sided. So, uh, yeah, give me a follow. I follow back, and I'd love to hear some feedback. All right, well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Of course. All right, we leave the AFC East, go back to the NFC East with the Dallas Cowboys, with our great Cowboy fan, Troy Moriello. Troy, welcome back. How are you? I'm okay, Mike. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Funny, you know, seven weeks into this social distancing quarantine, you and I are back on the air. Not much changed. Yeah, yeah, we were staying off air. Pretty much, pretty much same story. I think, I think when we talked a little over a month ago, I don't think either one of us thought it would last this long and still kind of have no end in sight. But, but here we are, and still no sports either, which isn't great. Not great, but at least got the draft, and I got to say, your Cowboys killed in this draft. And I mean, the storyline of the first round, I think, for them was. The fact that C.D. Lamb falls to them at 17, like how shocked were you that he was there and then the Cowboys went there? Oh, yeah, I was I was absolutely stunned. I mean, going into the draft, I, I kind of figured they were probably going to take a defensive back or a pass rusher. Uh, that was really the two things that I kept hearing, kept hearing. Obviously, they had a need at wide receiver. They have uh, Amari Cooper. They have Michael Gallup. They could use a third guy with Randall Cobb leaving, but I figured they were probably going to do that in, on you know day two, maybe even day three because it's such a deep wide receiver class. Um, I always had dreams of, of you know, CeeDee Lamb or uh, Henry Ruggs or uh, Jerry Judy falling to them, but I didn't, I didn't think it was realistic that any of those guys would. When the Raiders took Ruggs, though, at what was it, 11 or 12, that's when the wheels kind of started turning, and I was thinking, hold on a second. You know, one of these two guys could be there. Um, and then when, when, obviously, it got to uh, Atlanta, you kind of figured they, they'd have a shot at it. And when it got to the Cowboys ticket 17, I, I thought it was obvious. You know, they could have reached for a cornerback. They could have reached for a pass rusher, like I said. But I think the best player available there, and, and that was CeeDee Lamb. And I think he had such a dimension to their offense that they weren't really missing last season. But, I mean, he just opens up the field for them so much and makes Dak Prescott's life way easier, which is exactly what you want to do for a guy like Dak Prescott, who, who showed that he can be really an elite-type passer last season. I think Lamb does this that, and I was – absolutely thrilled that he was still there at 17. Yeah, I think that's a pick you have to make because A, the value is tremendous, and B, the Eagles were going to take him if he gets down to them. So, like, that's something you don't want to be competing against him twice a year for the next decade. 
Exactly. I'm happy you brought that up too. Cause I mean, you think, you think about the teams that were right out to Dallas, they were not going to take a wide receiver. So absolutely. You're, you're hundred percent right. Lamb was going to fall to the Eagles there. If you didn't take him, I think the Eagles were trying to trade up to jump the Cowboys to get Lamb uh, is what I've heard. So part of it is, is having Lamb, a, a huge part of it is just having him on your team. But then a small part of it is keeping him away from the team that, you know, you're going to be battling with in the NFC East for years to come. So you're absolutely right. Keeping him away from the Eagles is also a big part of it. Yeah, and the Cowboys, they got tremendous value out of the draft. I feel like everybody they sort of wanted fell right to them. And I feel like I did ratings for fan sided for the NFL draft. I gave them the best grade in the draft. Do you agree that they had the best draft in the league? Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely had one of the best uh, drafts I've seen. I think the Ravens and the Vikings had good drafts as well. But, yeah, I mean, you talk about the value of their picks. You know, CeeDee Lamb is a guy who I think everyone agrees is a top 10, you know, worst case, top 15 talent. They get him in the first round. Uh, Trayvon Diggs, their second round pick. I saw some people saying he could go late first round. You know, that's another great pick. Uh, Gallimore, another guy that got some value in the third round. And then you even look at their D3 picks. Uh, they get this center from, from Wisconsin, uh, Biadif, I think his name is. Guy who could, uh, you know, come in and be a starter right away. One of the better, I think, run, lock, run blocking uh, linemen in the draft this season. And they get this kid, Bradley Anai, who I, I saw, I think it was Mel Kuyper, had him rated as like his 89th best prospect. And they get him all the way at pick 179. So exactly like you said, the, the value that they got on like four or five of their first, you know, six picks, was incredible. It's, it's guys who could step in and be starters right away as well. And yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the value that they got for some of these picks, it, it's, it's incredible. And I, I think that's why they have, you know, a consensus top top five pick, you would definitely say. So I'm guessing the draft grade is going to be at least an A or an A+. Plus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's so hard to give to give draft grades, you know, in the, in the days after. But yeah, I mean, you're just looking at the, the value. Yeah, absolutely. They, they got so much value from from, like I said, you know, four or five of these picks. And another thing to, to mention, too, is just, just look at these guys. A good amount of them are going to step in and be starters, uh, if not this season, the next season, or be big contributors this season, you would think. Obviously, Lamb, the first-round pick. Uh, Trayvon Diggs is a guy who could step in and be a starter at cornerback right away. They're talking about moving uh, Chidobe Awuze to, to uh, safety. Diggs is a guy who would start right away. Gallimore. And Anai, two pass rushers who could step in and start right away. And then this center from Wisconsin, uh, uh, Tyler Biedich, he could step in and be a guy who's going to at least compete for the starting center job right away. I mean, you have like four or five guys who could be, you know, instant impacts for your team. Just based on that alone, you have to give them a, a really high grade, you know, an A, however you want to you want to call it. But you know, time will always tell. You know, I, I think it's. It's always it always makes me laugh with these with these draft grades because because it's so hard to tell you know in the days coming but just based on the value that they got and the instant con- contributions they're probably going to get from a lot of these guys I think that kind of makes this draft a success uh, in in this, at this point in time at least. Yes, I would agree. If I were a Cowboys fan, I want Jerry Jones drafting that yacht every single year for the rest of his life. Oh, absolutely! I know when I. When I first saw him uh, at the draft, he had that, that smile on his face, and I, I knew he was up to no good, and I guess the no good was uh, was taking C.D. Lamb. But I, I think they said he was he was drafting alone as well, or he didn't want to be bothered by anyone as well, so I guess he should do that every year as well. All right, Troy, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how happy people follow you on social media keep up some of the stuff you're up to? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They can follow me on at Troy Moriello on Twitter, uh, T-R-O-Y-M-A-U-R-I-E-L-L-O. Uh, some Cowboys talk, mostly uh, mostly St. John's talk. I've been on the show, obviously, a couple times talking about 
uh, St. John's. I do a podcast on them, so you can check that out. Uh, my pin tweet. You can, you can, if you're a St. John's fan, you can check that out as well. And uh, thank you for having me on again, Mike. I really appreciate it. No problem, Troy. Thanks. All right, how's it going? All right, one last stop in the fan forum. We are going back to Florida, going to Jacksonville with the one and only Jaguars man I know, our pop culture correspondent, Sam DeRosa. Sam, welcome. How are you? Thanks. I like my introduction there. <laughs> it's true. You are the one and only Jaguars fan I know. I guess so. There are a few of us out there. <laughs> yeah, so maybe one time you can have me meet more of them. Yeah, me too. I'd have to go find them first. <laughs> yeah, we'll go find them another day, but... We were talking about the Jaguars and the virtual draft. The virtual draft was fun. The Jaguars got two picks in the first round this year. They got, I think they got the corner out of Florida, C.J. Henderson. They get another defender, the pass rusher. Did that surprise you mm -hmm. that they went defense, the first two picks? No, um, they have to look for the future. And they. I, I thought it wasn't a bad, those two weren't bad picks at all. Um very excited uh, to see how the youngsters are going to do. Yeah, I'm excited to especially, see. Especially Henderson, who's coming out of Florida, because they've had pretty good success with uh, good picks coming out of Florida. He's got big shoes to fill, replacing Jalen Ramsey, so hopefully the pressure doesn't overwhelm him. Yeah, I think he's he's ready for it. Especially if you're like you're going to Florida to another like part of Florida. I think he's like he knows exactly their fan base and crowd. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. They're not far away from Jacksonville there in Gainesville, so that's one thing yeah. to look forward to. They also added a fast receiver around to LaVisca Cheneau, and I know as a Gardner Ministry supporter, I'm sure you're very happy that they added him to help him out. Yes, I'm very excited to see. I mean, like, I know it's all about the new, uh, the new class of 2020 here, but um, I'm just very excited to see what Gardner Minshew is going to do this year, especially with the new talent that they have. Yeah, this receiver should help him out. Watching him with DJ Chark, they got some fun weapons on the outside. He'll he'll have some options to throw the ball to if they can keep him upright. Yeah, and especially because he has such you know he has a different way style of doing things. So as long as they perform probably just normal, I think that they're going to do well. All right, so give me the grade. How would you grade your draft? I know it's a tricky thing because we've seen none of these guys play before. If you had to throw a letter out there, made F. Um, I definitely don't think they're in the A range, like as much as I'm excited for the new people, um, the new players, I should say, <laughs> poor people. Um, but I'm getting probably like a B, a B minus kind of deal. I was hoping that they would go for, um, like maybe a little bit of a higher for a, um, quarterback. Sorry, I can't think of words. Uh, cause they weren't, what was it? Ninth round? Sixth? Like I have to like yeah, Minshew was sixth round last year. Yeah, but like for this year, um, they got a quarterback. Oh, it was the sixth round too. Yeah, Jake Lutton out of Oregon. He seems really excited. I saw them him posting a bunch of stuff about being a Jaguars. Um, but I'm really looking forward to Ben um Ben Barch out of St. John's. Um, he like literally gains like eight. What is a fifty nine pounds, sixty pounds? Yeah. But like, like it's not like this kid's like I'm gonna be in the NFL. Like it's gonna be crazy. But um, with everything going on, it's probably like a B B minus. I yeah. feel like they could have done a little bit better. But what they had, what they have, is pretty good. I definitely think they needed to add a 
a significant amount of people to their defensive line. Especially this, if you saw it this year, like offensively they were doing well, but their defensive line broke a little too many times for my liking. Yes, this is true. And if, if they're not, I mean, I'm not feeling great about you guys, but if they do have a bad year, there is a positive that you'll probably get Sunshine himself, Trevor Lawrence, my quarterback in two years. Yeah. Well, well, knowing their luck, they'll do well that year and not get a good pick because uh, that's typical Jaguars fashion. Um, but I'm hoping, like, everyone's counting them out this year, like, already. They're like, yeah, whatever. I don't, I wouldn't count them out completely. That's when they usually do well. So just be careful for what people are saying. You might jinx them. All right, we'll keep an eye on those Jaguars. And, Sam, thank you for helping me wrap up the fan forum. We talked to 11 different fans in the podcast this week, going through basically around the country talking about the draft. And it's, it's, been, a, it's been a bit of a ride this week. I mean, it was a really good draft this year for what it was and how our, the pandemic has affected it. I thought it went really well. What, I, I'll ask you, since we're in more of the pop culture mood here, we're getting ready to do pop culture next. We're going to do Last Dance with Ian Sachs in just a minute. As somebody who is more in tune with the pop culture side of things, what did you think of the presentation of the virtual draft? How did you like it? It was interesting. I uh, <laughs> I enjoyed Belichick's uh, dog a lot. That was really nice. Um, but for what they had to put together in a short amount of time, like there's you know ca- so many cameras and people that have to go places. I thought it was like production wise, they did a really good job with it. Yes, they killed the production-wise. I was talking about this with Joe D. earlier in the podcast. A couple of things caught my attention. Number one, I'm, do, I'm sure you saw this. I want to know what was going on at Mike Vrabel's house. I'm like, Joe called it a frat party in the background there. I want to know what was going on there. Yeah, that was very interesting. And number two, I love that Roger Goodell became less of a cyborg and more of a human being as the weekend went on. I, I felt like on Friday night when he was doing the late-round picks that he was getting ready to read us a bedtime story. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it has to be, like, you have to get used to things. So I feel like, or somebody was like, listen, you got to loosen up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we got to the point where he starts out with, like, the blazer on. He's got the dress mm-hmm. shirt on. Then he goes to the sweater. And then he's sitting in the chair. And then, like, they had that really tight close-up on him sitting in the chair reading the picks. And I'm like, this feels like the night before Christmas. And you have to turn the fireplace on. <laughs> I also enjoyed uh, that all the teams basically had to send their hats to, like, all these first rounders and stuff like for a few rounds because yeah. they have the videotapes i thought that was great i'm like wanting to reach out to a few of them and be like hey send me that jacksonville jaguars hat that you're not going to use <laughs> yeah you're sure there's a lot of jaguars hats floating around this thing maybe we could score one of them yeah i mean like if any if this reaches any of these like guys who just got drafted and have the jacksonville jaguars hat in the back of their closet now you know just throw one to me i'll even pay for the shipping and handling there you go. It's a great offer, and I will say we will be hearing from you again next week. We're actually going to be talking about the season finale of Westworld next week. We'll wrap up the whole season. Things have gotten interesting since the last time we talked. It's been one roller coaster ride this season. Yeah, I will say we we did not guess that Dolores was inside of everybody. That was something we missed. I was. I will. I won't spoil my reaction now, but I was feeling a certain way. Okay, well, te- that's a good tease for next week. I appreciate the tease. <laughs> Gotta leave them hanging. Gotta leave them hanging. And if people want to follow you on social media, get your Jaguar hot takes. How do they do that? <laughs> I'm at S-D-R-O-S-5 on Twitter. All right. There you have it. Thanks, Sam. Thank you all who were on the fan forum this week. Up next, we are going to talk The Last Dance with Ian Sachs right after this. 
right, it's time to get into The Last Dance, week number two. Episodes three and four aired on Sunday night. Got a lot to talk about this week. On the line with me to discuss the next, the latest two episodes of The Last Dance, the great Ian Sachs. Ian, welcome. How are you? Mike, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. And what better way to spend out this quarantine than talking about some epic time in, in sports history and specifically NBA history with the Jordan Bulls and their last run at a championship and so many storylines connected to that final season. And it's what I've been talking about ever since ESPN first dropped its its initial uh, preview of it at sometime last year. And I had June circled on my calendar and well, then it got moved up to April. So it's, it's just been a, an incredible ride so far, two weeks in, and can't wait to see what the final six episodes have in store. It is, and we were going to be joined by by our great broadcast partner at Iona, Austin Stilato, but he is being a responsible young man. He has class tonight. It is running long, so we cannot wait for him to hop on the line. So we're going to man this without him. I think we can be our best Jordan and Pippen impersonation. We don't need Rodman tonight. Ha <laughs> ha. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know if he's Rodman. I think he might have some a problem with that characterization but anyway the it, where i own is big three and you got the bulls big three yeah we'll just say for the sake of this podcast that he is you could say he's we'll say he's in class you know he's probably you know out like trying to strategize about what his next trip to vegas will be <laughs> as long as he rides off in a motorcycle that's all that matters in, indeed. So before we dive into the episodes, I want to ask you about your background with this team. Obviously, you're a bit young for the to actually see this team live. What are your What do you know about this '98 Bulls team? Sure. I, um, as you said, I, I am a bit young. During this season, right around when they won the championship, I turned four years old. So I don't have any full re- recollection of watching this stuff firsthand my my first basketball memories are watching the lakers three-peat from 2000 to 2002 so i'm a little bit after the jordan time i the only times i saw jordan play live that i can remember were his wizards days which clearly was not michael jordan being michael jordan in his prime but of course i i being a basketball junkie have read up and watched Rewatched so many clips and documentaries and and pieces about the Jordan era with the Bulls and the '98 season in particular. I have a picture of the shot against the Jazz, Jordan's final moments as a Chicago Bull hanging up in my room. It's one of my favorite pieces of sports memorabilia. Jordan's even highlighted in the picture hitting that shot with the ball in the air. And there was a certain air about that Jordan era and Jordan himself that when I first, when I bought my first Jordan t-shirt, you know, Jordan brand t-shirt, I was like, wow, now I have a piece of, of Michael Jordan with me. And, and of course, that's what I wore last Sunday for the first two episodes of it. Had to ring it in with a, a special Jordan piece of apparel. And he, he just meant so much to the game. And, you can compare him to Kobe. You can compare him to to LeBron, but there has never been, and there will never be another Michael Jordan. 
I can agree with that. As somebody who lived through the end of that era, that was certainly something. And I got to say, like, we thought the first episodes were great. I feel like episodes three and four got even better. It's it's amazing to think that after the first two weeks, I 11 o'clock after the first week, I was ready to sit down and watch the final eight episodes right after that. I, I was willing to, to stay up until 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning just so we could finish the series. But uh, I'm very glad that they're spacing it out because it gives us something to think about, something to talk about, something to look forward to throughout the weeks leading up to Sunday. And there are just so many different storylines. You think about that first episode, you have Jordan and the background. We know so much about Jordan. Then they get into Pippin, the number two with the Bulls. And a lot of that is, has been documented, his growth spurt with it, it, when he was in college him being underpaid, signing that long contract with the Bulls where he was making $17 million, not a, per year, but over the course of that multi-year deal. But what really stuck out to me about the Pippin part of it was his family. And I knew about his father uh, suffering a stroke and being uh, paralyzed, but I had no idea about the storyline with his brother and all the more that making it to the NBA just meant so much more to him. And then we get to Rodman, who has his own 30 for 30 about him, which watching this week's two episodes of The Last Dance has made me want to go back and rewatch the Rodman 30 for 30 because he is just such an interesting character. I know we're going to touch so much more on him. And then you look at the the general of it and Phil Jackson, and there's so much to digest with him where, you know, he comes from growing up in Montana, playing at North Dakota, playing in the NBA. Then he finds himself coaching in Puerto Rico and Albany, New York. And then a few years later, he's winning championships with two of the best players to ever live. So there's just so much to get into with the Bulls from the entire decade of the 90s, and particularly the 97-98 year. Yeah, indeed. So before we go any further, I'm going to put up the good old-fashioned spoiler warning. So if you have not seen episodes three and four of The Last Dance, get out, go watch it, unless you don't care about us going through all the major storylines from the episodes. Now we can dive into some of this stuff, and I will say, when I knew it was the Robin episode this week, I was curious about what direction we were going to go, because as you said, we had the Robin 30 for 30, we had some stuff on the Pistons and the Bad Boys 30 for 30, so they thought they did a good job sort of like treading over ground they already went over in previous documentaries, but the stuff they gave us from Robin was just fantastic. I, I, you know, just thinking about him and the way that you have Jordan, who's so driven to play and to win and to win at all costs and all those stories about him getting into fights with teammates at practice and, and not being satisfied until he won a championship uh, and continued to play at such a high level. And even thinking about Jordan's baseball days where instead of just taking regular batting practice and going through drills, but he was working nonstop to get to hone his craft in the minor leagues and, and the drive that Jordan had. And then you had Pippen who is right there with him and 
you know, the best number two in the history of the league. And then you have the circus of Dennis Rodman. And you, you really, if you think about it, you try to wonder, how did he fit into that goal structure? You have Phil Jackson, who is the Zen master and works on a different clock. You saw the, the, he, uh, the clips of him leading yoga sessions with the team and with the teams. And you saw his, his office where he had so many Native American artifacts and you, you know him for his Buddhism and, and all of his Zen pieces. And what I really loved was the way that they intertwined Rodman and Phil in the way that they connected on a deeper level. And you really got a sense for that Rodman is a much more complex character than simply the wild hairdos and the piercings and the dressing up as a bride. And you really got to see that there's a lot that goes into Dennis Rodman, in particular, even starting with when he talking about when he was in Detroit and being found passed out in his car with a shotgun right next to him. And you wonder had what he could have done in that in those moments had he not passed out. And that could have completely altered the entirety of NBA history. Yeah, for sure. And then you're right, Rob is such a complex character. I mean like we saw at the beginning of the doc, like this week, we saw in the beginning of episode three, like how brilliant he was basketball-wise. He's talking about, you know, like how he would work to practice rebounding and how he would go in late at night and have guys shoot from different angles, get himself ready to rebound for different people. Like nobody in the history of the sport is a better rebounder than Dennis Robin. I will take that to my grave. Well, I loved the stat that they gave it in the trivia part, of either going to commercial or coming back from it, where they said that Dennis Rodman had seven games in which he collected 20 rebounds and did not score a single point. Just let that sink in. 20 rebounds and zero points. The next highest in NBA history was two. That gives you an idea of how much of a specialist Dennis Rodman was in his playing days. And Mike, you referenced it, that part of about Rodman describing his rebounding and how he honed his craft and having his friends purposely miss at different angles so that he could learn how the ball comes off. Okay, from this angle, it's going to come off on this side. When he shoots over here, I have to get, get on the other side of the basket. And I listened to the Jalen and Jacoby interview with the director, Jason Ayer, afterwards, and he described that that was one of, that was a, a part where the editors piece that together and that came out even better than he was expecting and that was one of the biggest memes to come out of it on social media in the days that have followed since the episode dropped yeah that was great and we got a lot of great like descriptions of robin including this one from the from the great gary payton dennis robin was the fuck up person he just fucks everything up he's a pest I don't think you can describe him better. He really was just a pest. He was a guy who would get under your skin. He would do all the dirty work in the game. Like, he didn't care if he didn't score the ball. Like, if he was getting the rebound. He was irritating you, and he was doing the things off the team win. That's all I care about. And that's why he fit in so well with that Bulls team. You have Jordan who's going to get his bucket and going to score and going to draw the attention of the other team. Jordan, who's also been 
an all-defensive player, winning defensive player of the year. You have Pippen, who provides such length. Pippen, you know, growing up was a guard, so he's used to playing out on the perimeter, even though in the NBA he's a small forward and standing at 6'8". But as they mentioned, how Pippen completely altered the 1991 finals when he matched up against Magic Johnson as opposed to having Jordan on him. But then there are so many little things that Rodman did that doesn't get in the stat sheet, doesn't show up to the naked eye. But when you sit down and you really look at it, you say, wow, that possession, Rodman did this, go for the ball. The amazing picture of Rodman completely laying out, he's parallel to the ground for the rebound. I mean, not many other guys would do that, but that's the type of person that Rodman was. And I really enjoyed the character, another characterization of Rodman in which they said, yeah, he might be all wacky and crazy and need to go off to Vegas and need a vacation. And he was this sideshow. But when the chips were down, when the games that needed to be won had to be won, he was there. And Jordan knew that. And Pippen knew that. And Phil knew that. And the entire organization knew that, okay, let Rodman be Rodman when we don't necessarily need him to perform. Because when we do need him, he'll turn up for us. Yeah, let's yeah, let's go into a little more Rodman. Like, What was your favorite Rodman moment on episode three? I have to pick out two here. One we already touched on, and that was the his describing how he rebounds and the pop, 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 and learning from having his friends purposely miss shots to see how they'll come off. And then the second one would have to be watching him get his vacation, get that 48-hour vacation to Vegas, and rolling out of the United, uh, the United Center on the motorcycle. I mean, this is just so surreal that here the Bulls are on the cusp of defending the last two championships. Here's one of the top players on the team, and he's pulling away from the arena with a motorcade of motorcycles to go to a weekend trip to Las Vegas. Just the concept of that is mind-blowing to me and pre- presents so many questions and, and, and answers and, and thoughts that it's just, I mean, that is who Dennis Rodman was. Oh, no doubt. I mean, can you imagine this happened today? Like, let's say, like, we're talking about the Brooklyn Nets, for example, and all of a sudden we hear Kyrie Irving sides in the middle of, of the week. Like, you know what? Like, I need to go to Vegas for the weekend and blow off some steam. And, like, on this social media age, he'll be getting ripped to shreds for doing the middle of the season. The fact that Rodman basically just disappeared for 48 hours to Vegas in the middle of the most, like, scrutinized NBA season in history is just remarkable. It almost reminds me of when Derrick Rose was with the, the Knicks, and he just disappeared for a couple days and nobody knew where he was. I mean, at least the, the Bulls organization knew where Rodman was or so they thought because then he turned the second half of the time off into a staycation and then they had to drag him back to practice after finding him in his apartment in Chicago right across from uh, I believe either the, the United Center or their training facility but the, the way that 
you have a you know a star player who is a household name, and he's just middle of the season not with the team. While the parallel isn't great with with Derrick Rose, but think about how many headlines that got and that made, and we kind of just laughed it off as well. It's the next thing, the next another example of the organization's dysfunction. But this is the Chicago Bulls who have won the last two NBA championships. They have two of the best players of all time. They have one of the best coaches of all time. And they're just going to let Dennis Rodman just run off to Vegas for a couple of days. It's incredible to think about. Yeah. I love also the, the, the conversations between Jordan and Phil Jackson about it. And Jordan's like, I don't care what you say. He's not coming back in 48 hours. And like, Phil's like, He'll come back, and then Jordan has to go drag him out of the hotel, and Karin Lecker's hiding behind the chair so that, she, that Michael, the MJ doesn't find her. Like, and then the whole storyline after that about how you know, like, there's they did the drill to get Robin back in shape, and the Bulls like, okay, well, let's go slow so Rob we can not like kill Robin. And then Robin's running laps around though. I thought that was I was dying laughing with that. Right, and and to go back to that conversation that you mentioned about Michael and Phil talking about. Rodman and whether to give him permission to go for the trip. Think about it this way, that Phil had to check with Jordan about that. He didn't have to check with Jerry Krause, the GM. He didn't have to check with Jerry Ronsdorf, the owner. He didn't have to make the decision himself. He had to check with Jordan about it. And that really signified a change in the NBA of the players having the final say in the dominant power. And We'll touch back on that later. I, I know we're going to get into the ending of the episode with Krause's statements around the time of the All-Star game. So we'll, we'll save touching about the power struggle with Jordan. But at that point, at least, Jordan was the most powerful person in the organization above the head coach, above the GM, above the owner. Yeah, Jordan really ran everything. I do want to also throw out an underrated Dennis Robin moment from the archival footage. It involves an interaction he had with the great late Craig Saker. Yes. I'll pay for your fine. Huh? <laughs> you pay for my fine, see? See what I'm saying? All people that's in the business of crooked, too. I'm letting you know now. That was Craig Sager gave me 20 bucks to pay for my fine. Sound like a bribe. That's what I'm saying. He must want to interview you or something. That's his problem. I could not believe they actually got footage of Craig Sayer giving Robin a $20 bill to help pay for his fine. Again, imagine if that happened in today's day and age of social media and of the scrutiny that the the players, the reporters, everyone is under these days. It was just a different time. And that's what I love. This documentary is hearkening us back to that time when I would consider it, I think, I really think the golden age of the NBA. Now you have so many offensive outputs, and but everyone's just so scrutinized over everything. Whereas there, the players were, were able to, to lay back a little bit, you know, joke around with Craig Sager like that. And the, it's, it's just such a different time period from nowadays yeah indeed the other key thing i want to touch on this episode was obviously you know they're kind of flashing back as you go they're showing you the whole dynasty you know austin 
has said on Twitter, he doesn't really understand the format. I get it, kind of. is like, yeah, we're talking about the 98 Bulls. We're sort of flashing back to show you the whole Bull ride. And one of the key moments we got to was the infamous series against the Cavaliers, the Craig Elo game. Back in Game 5 85, first of all, I want to point out, like, I love the story from Samson. I talk about how all the beat writers predicted that the, the Bulls would lose to the Cavs, and Jordan Walsh, number four, Game 5, says, I prove you wrong, I prove you wrong, I prove you wrong today. I thought that was fantastic. And I also loved the moment when they talked about how Ron Harper should have been guarding him on the play, on the famous shot that he beats Elo on, and Ron Harper... Breaks Twitter with this fantastic reaction. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Fuck this bullshit. I mean, come on. This is like literally gold. So much that you to unpack there with, with what you just said. One thing I, I want to touch on with how you mentioned about Austin tweeting about how the series seems to kind of be going a little bit all over the place and it was billed as the last dance and focusing on the 1998 season. But in order to put that in perspective, you have to look back at the rise and how Jordan was a kid who missed, who got cut from his high school team. Pippen started his playing career in college. He was a manager on the college team. A couple of the guys failed off. He fortunately got a scholarship, had a growth spurt, and this is at Central Arkansas. Rodman, meanwhile, was a player at Southeastern Oklahoma State, a Division II school. To think that, you know, what if the, the odds were so long for all three of them to be in their prime in this 98 season, to the fact that Phil Jackson should, should have, you know, the ownership and management, or really Jerry Krause, didn't want Phil back for that season. If Phil didn't come back, there's no last dance at all. Because they, they wouldn't have granted the, might not have granted the access that we had to this final season. So it's so important to see all of that lead up. And I'm sure that as we continue through the series, we'll get more into the 98 season is a bigger portion of each episode will be the 1998 season. Now we're, we're already up to the all-star break, but really now is when it gets cooking the push for the playoffs, the playoff run all the way to the rematch with the jazz in the finals for the second straight year. But to go back to the Craig Ewell and Ron Harper discussion, that's one of the, the most iconic moments of Jordan's career. You think about him hitting that shot and then jumping for joy towards the camera, punching the air. When you think about Michael Jordan and you think about iconic moments, of course you think of his final shot with the Bulls winning the 98 finals. You think about the dunk contest, jumping from the free throw line. You think about him hitting the final shot to win the championship in college over Georgetown when he was a freshman at North Carolina. And you think about this play. It's the first round of the playoff playing the Cleveland Cavaliers who at the time 
We're one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. And this is part of Jordan becoming Jordan. Jordan elevating his game, taking it to another level, and realizing here's a mistake that they made, and I'm going to make them pay for it. And this is just another step on my way to becoming the greatest of all time. I also love that we got the full commentary from him, what he's actually shouting at this at, after he made the shot. He basically screamed, you're going home, mother effers. You're going home, mother effers. You're going home. I was just laughing when I heard that. That's another thing that I love about this documentary. There are several points in each episode where I find myself laughing and because it's just such pure gold that you're getting such an inside look at some of the most iconic moments of Michael Jordan's career and getting his thoughts about it, getting the, the, the opponent's perspective on it, as you said, with, as you played a couple minutes ago, Ron Harper, and the, as you said, the Sam Smith moment about, he said how Jordan came over and pointed to all three of the writers and said how he, he's going to disprove them. That is so iconic of Michael Jordan, the way that someone tells him no, he says yes, and he shows you that he's going to do it. Yeah, it is, it is pretty savage. I want to play this one more time before we move on from this. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Fuck this bullshit. I mean, it's literally, that's basically sums up like what went wrong with the Cavs. It's, it's something that, you know, probably Lenny Wilkins thought was a good move at the time. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, but who knows if Ron Harper would have stopped Jordan if he did? Who knows where the rest of NBA history might have gone? If he hadn't, then okay, it's just an iconic moment that it's Jordan shooting over Harper instead of Elo. Yeah, it's true. Let's go to the next episode real quick. We have to get into the Phil Jackson stuff because the Phil Jackson stuff was great because, I mean... We started off finding out about some of his early days. We found out, no shock to anybody, that he's on, they did acid in the 70s. And then I think the greatest thing to come out of this is the story about his coaching in Puerto Rico and some of the stuff that was going on there. We I mean, we had the whole thing about how the fans killed the chicken and then dropped the blood on the visiting team's bench to like try and like haunt, haunt the team or something. And then we also had the whole storyline about how the referee basically gets shot by the mayor of the town, and the mayor's punishment is that he can't go to any more home games the rest of the year. I literally am watching this. Now that I'm laughing, I'm basically sitting there going, What the hell's going on out here? I'm like, what is going on in Puerto Rico in the 70s in basketball? Well, the, the story that I really stuck with me was that one that you mentioned about the mayor and shooting the referee in the leg and then not being able to go to any more of the home games, my initial thought was, wait, he's not banned from road games? So he can go travel with the team, and that's probably even scarier that now he's traveling and purposely seeking out to go to these games as opposed to, oh, the game's on tonight, I have nothing to do, yeah, let me you know, walk over to the arena and, and take part in the game. Now if he's actively seeking out the games in other cities, who knows what he might be trying to do. And Phil Jackson is one of the most interesting persons when it comes to basketball history to think that he grew up in Montana, went to the University of North Dakota, then has a 
a pretty decent playing career, wins a couple championships with the Knicks. But then, unlike today, the NBA is not knocking down his door to have him turn right to the coaching side of the game when you think about the likes of Derek Fisher and Jason Kidd walking off the court right into head coaching positions, basically. Phil had to go out to Puerto Rico, go to Albany, New York with the Patrons there, and then finally he gets called on by the Chicago Bulls, and he basically becomes the coach in waiting there, which is essentially what happened to him with Tim Ford. Yeah, basically, that's basically weird how it came full circle for him, and I do want to point out there, we did spend a little bit of time talking about the Doug Collins era for the Bulls, and the thing that was interesting about the Doug Collins is basically like he basically, his whole game plan was Michael Jordan takes the ball, Michael Jordan does whatever he wants, Michael Jordan scores, we win. That was the whole strategy then, and that did not work against the Pistons. That ends up costing him his job. A couple of things here. One that I really thought that they could have spent a lot more time on that it was covered in the documentary, but a really important moment was Michael Jordan buying into the triangle offense. And that initially Jordan thought, wait, this doesn't make any sense. I'm the best player on the team. I should get the most chances at it. And it's a Doug Collins way of, I take the most shots and I lead the offense. That makes sense. But in this triangle offense, it doesn't matter who touches it, who gets the most looks. As long as it works, then, you know, as long as it works and we score, then it's, we're fine. The fact that that was, was touched on a little bit and that Jordan, you know, initially kind of resisted it and then ultimately bought in and clearly it worked for them going to six, winning six championships. But that was really an instrumental moment in the careers of Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson. If Michael Jordan rejects the triangle offense, he and Phil don't get along then because Phil is trying to implement a system that the star player doesn't agree with. And then Phil is probably run out of town or Jordan is run out of town. And the Bulls don't become the Bulls dynasty. So the fact that that got just a few minutes in the documentary, really, that's one of the the marquee pivotal moment in creating this Bulls dynasty. Yeah, indeed. I, we got that great quote, too, where Jordan basically is having the system explained to him, and, and the coach goes to him, there's no I in team. And he goes, yeah, but there's an I in win. So, like, you could see the clash being set right there. And then they had that great sequence where talks about that one game where he realizes that John Paxson's open and John Paxson keeps hitting shots. And, you know, what? like, I like this. Like, he keeps feeding it to Paxson, and Paxson keeps hitting threes, and they win this game. And that's sort of the moment where the buy-in really happens. Exactly. And uh, I, I believe it was yesterday I, I saw a story about Steve Kerr sharing a similar moment with Kevin Durant with the Warriors of, you know, saying, you don't have to force it. You know that, you know, in the back of your head, you know that he's going to be open, passing the ball. You get him involved, that'll open things up for you. And in return, you'll be getting the baskets right back. Really, that's the essence of the triangle offense. And I watched 
the detail episodes with Phil Jackson and Dennis Rodman describing the triangle offense, and it really is beautiful the way that the Bulls just effortlessly filled in to make a triangle, and boom, all of a sudden, it opens up Michael Jordan wide open underneath the basket. Or, you know, it, it opens up something where, where they reverse it back, and Jordan has a, a great look from 12 feet out. And that the way that it works and the way that it's not designed to, okay, on this play, the ball is going to go here. On that play, the ball is going to go over here. And ultimately, we're going to get it to here. In the way that we have the ball on the left side, boom, create a triangle over here. We have the ball on the right side of the court, create a triangle down there. We reverse it, we get a little back screen, and all of a sudden, boom, we have a nice easy basket. The way that this system works, and once you get the players to understand it, once you get the buy-in from all five players on the court, it really is a thing of beauty. Yeah, it really is. I also You also have to give credit to Jerry Krause as well, because this is the decision to go to Phil basic, over Doug Collins, basically because at the time, like Tex Winter was the assistant coach on the staff, basically comes up to the idea of the triangle. Doug Collins was no part of it. He convinces Jerry Krause, you know what, like this is the right thing we have to do to win this game, and he follows Doug Collins after they get to the Eastern Conference Finals and lose to Detroit. And that takes a lot of stones back in 1989 to do that. And you got to give him credit for making that decision. Well, we see that Jerry Krause really does not have a lot of loyalty. And that, you know, here's, here's Doug Collins who in three years takes the Bulls from just making the playoffs to the doorstep of the NBA Finals and elevates Jordan to all-NBA first team, MVP, you know, consideration, defensive player of the year. And he's helping to elevate Jordan's game, but Krause sees that, hey, we have Phil Jackson here willing to try a new system, willing to, to get something to work. And Krause goes along with it and Eric, when he the the director Jason Air when he was talking to Jalen and Jacoby he said that by the end of this documentary by the end of the the rest of the ten episodes you're going to see that Krause really is the architect of the entire Bulls dynasty and though through the first four episodes he has been brutally attacked as the one to destroy the dynasty which yes he did do that and. That should be a part of his legacy. But I, I'm curious to see how over the next six episodes we can learn to maybe appreciate Krause's reign a little bit more. Yeah, indeed. And I do also want to point out before we move on from the completely Doug Collins thing, I want to give credit to whoever this news anchor was having the best like savage burn possible in 1989. Now, if you're getting ready for work right now, then you're probably not Doug Collins. Chicago Bulls head coach was fired in the supply move yesterday. Nope. I mean, think about that. In 1989, you're going on the news saying, you're getting for work right now? You're not Doug Collins. You just got fired. That's pretty blunt. Another one of those hilarious clips that you see in this documentary that you, you just find yourself laughing at. And, and, you know, this is Doug Collins, who fortunately has gone on to have a great coaching career since the, uh, leading the Bulls 
right before Phil Jackson, but it, you just you just start laughing, and it's not a, really a funny documentary. Yes, it takes you back to to a great time in, in NBA history, but there's just these pieces old that they dug up that clip. I know we'll we'll talk in a few minutes about the Jerry Krause dancing clip, but these are just moments that you just find yourself laughing at. And it's it's incredible, and I harken back to what Jim Balvano said. You know, if you think it, if it's a good day, if you think you cry and you laugh, and this documentary has really given us all three pieces, and we're only four episodes in. Yeah, it has, and I think the last thing you really got to hit on this thing is the robbery with the Pistons. Sort of was the through line throughout the two hours because. Obviously, we talked about before, the ESPN did a doc on them a few years back, the Bad Boys documentary about the Pistons team, get more on them, but we really get them sourced up, obviously, is what they were, which was the roadblock, the team that the Bulls had to overcome to really win that first title, and we talk about the Jordan rules, we talk about how, basically, they would harass him whenever he got in the lane, basically knock him to the ground, and, like, they could not get past that team at first, so, like, how do you think they did depicting that rivalry? I think that they portrayed it that the Pistons made Michael Jordan who he was. When you think back to the part of the documentary where after they lose to the Pistons in the playoffs and while the Pistons are getting getting ready to go on and play in the NBA Finals, the Bulls, instead of cleaning out their lockers, they start a, a weight training program. And it's not just Michael Jordan, not just Scottie Pippen. It's the entire team there dedicated to putting on muscle, to getting better, to getting stronger, to finding the parts of their game that were lacking against the Pistons in order to beat them the next year. And without that part of Michael Jordan's game, think about how skinny Michael Jordan was. He came into the league as a very skinny six six shooting guard. Now, that's great and agile and he can move. But putting on that muscle allowed him to get to the rim, allowed him to take the contact, allowed him to bang with the best of them, allowed him to take the beating from the Pistons and give it right back to them and not be be shallowed and, and shine away from it, but instead embracing it and saying, you know what, you can get physical with me. I'll be physical right back. And that's what helped propel the Bulls over the Pistons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they put it very well when, I think, I forget who said, but they said, like, the second that you see us, that they, that they see us whining or complaining the refs, they beat us because they already are in our heads and we can't get them out. And I liked how they did that. I also love the focus on the fact that, you know what, this is a team to decide we had to get better in the audience and we had to just work harder to beat them. And this is a great tweet I want to point out from Justin Termini from, I believe, Sirius. And he put this out on Sunday night. Part of the NBA is long gone. Pistons lose to the Lakers and Celtics. They work hard to improve in the offseason. Bulls lose to the Pistons. They work hard in the offseason to improve. Now it's team loses, team star leaves to find better teammates. And I think to me, if you are anti-LeBron in this, that's your argument right there because... We are now in the era where we don't have to make our team better. We go just find other stars to help us win. We don't elevate the people around us. Jordan elevated that entire franchise. Exactly. And that 
you know, he didn't go out and demand that, okay, Chicago, we need, we need to get another star. Clearly, Pippen and I are not working. We need someone else. He said, no, we have the tools right here. We have the heart. We have the desire. We have the drive. We're going to find it within ourselves to crack this code, beat these bad boy Pistons. And the way that he took that loss so hard in Game 7 of the 1990 Eastern Conference Finals, and then that made the victory in 91 over them that much sweeter. He basically said that that victory over the Pistons felt almost like winning a championship unto itself. Of course, then we see the joy that he shares in winning his first title a couple weeks later in beating the Showtime Lakers and really marking the passing of the torch from Magic to Jordan and had Michael Jordan's license plate back then with Magic Mike emulating Magic Johnson and now he takes the torch from him but the Pistons that was such a great rivalry really if you think back to the last few years when it was always the Warriors and the Cavaliers in the NBA Finals, you didn't have that deep hatred between the two teams of that each night they wanted to go out and just beat the other one to a pulp. It was, okay, they're playing a game of basketball, and then they all shake hands after afterwards. But that was clearly not the case with the Pistons and the Bulls. Yeah, it definitely wasn't. And we also we saw a bit of the bad blood with the whole fact that the Pistons walked off the floor instead of shaking hands at the end of the series. And Isaiah at the time is arguing, oh, you know, the Celtics did this to us in the 80s, so you know what, that's the way it is. And then Jordan has held that against him to this day, as we hear we heard in the doc, including in this clip. This is Isaiah talking about the walk-off. Well, I know it's all bullshit. Whatever he says now, you know it wasn't his true actions then. You know, it's time enough to think about it. Or the reaction of the public that's kind of changed his perspective of it. You can show me anything you want. There's no way you can convince me he wasn't an asshole. Yeah, you got that. You had Horace Graham basically calling the Pistons straight up bitches when they leave the court. I mean, like, it's pretty much what it is. That basically, the two of them have never seen eye to eye since that. And... I think we're going to get more on this in this week's episodes coming up, but we basically got the whole idea of, you know what, like, this is probably why Isaiah Thomas is not on the dream team because Jordan basically demanded that he be kept off. And I'm 100% on the side of the Bulls here. That's fine. No, that's not fine that the Celtics didn't do that, but two wrongs don't make a right. Just because that's the way that the Celtics treated the Pistons, that doesn't make it okay for the Pistons to treat the Bulls that way. As Jordan said, all three times that they lost to them, the three straight seasons, 88, 89, 90, when they lost to them in the playoffs, as much as that hurt, and we know how competitive of a player Jordan is, and he still had the the, the, the respect for the game to go up and shake all their hands, congratulate them on advancing in the playoffs, but they didn't have the class to do that. That just goes along with the lines of the the characterization of them being the bad boy Pistons. They're bad boys. They don't respect the game. And, you know, you can compete so hard on 
the court and try to rip each other's heads off in between the lines. But when that final buzzer sounds, you have to have enough respect for your your opponent and the game itself to congratulate them and say, you know what, good game. You got the best of us. Or, you know, you can even say, darn, you know, we, we let that one slip away. But anyway, you guys benefited from it. Yeah, indeed. And they move on. They go on to win the championship. We get to see the celebration on the plane. And we get to see some pretty hilariously bad dance moves from Jerry Krause. So how bad do you think the uh, the dancing was from Jerry? Well, I think it was one of my favorite moments of the documentary. And every single moment has been one of my favorite moments. But this one really stands out in particular that you see Jerry Krause and he's in so many words, trying to fit in with the rest of the guys. He's celebrating with them, but boy, Jerry needs to learn his line, learn his place. And now I'm a short little fat guy compared to all these tall athletic basketball players. I'm not going to be able to stack up with them, but it, it was one of my favorite moments for sure. Yeah, it's funny because now you have several points now. We've had, obviously, that became very gifable. That's we have a popular gif on social media after the fact. And now you have two different characters from Stacey Hammer claiming are based on Jerry Krause. The villain from the uh, from the Monstars and Wayne Wayne Newman's character clearly both based on Jerry Krause. It, it's so funny to, to see that, you know, we think of that as an entertaining kids movie of, you know, these, star basketball players getting their talent taken away from them and then having to fight back for it. But there were a lot more undertones than we might have initially realized there with Jerry Krause. And we're understanding a deeper appreciation for the movie now when you think about all those parallels. Yeah, I got the feeling after this over, we might need to actually do a rewatch of Space Jam. I have... Like this is one that project has been in the works, like something that Sandra Rose and I have been discussing for the podcast. Might be accelerated a little up the timetable with the whole parallels we're seeing here from Jerry Krause being basically inspiration for several characters in this movie. Hey, a rewatch of Space Jam is never a bad thing. No, it's definitely not. And it's funny because we go from the high of Jerry Krause to the low of Jerry Krause to end the hours. We're basically we hit the All Star break in '98. He puts this quote out as about to play the rematch of the Jazz about how like. If Michael wants to play for us, he can. He's got to play for a different coach because Phil's not definitely not going to be here next year. Like, I just don't know what was going through his mind at that time. Like, why are you making a power play in public against the best baseball player on the planet when you know the answer is he has more power than you. He's going to walk if he doesn't get what he wants. Well, it makes us realize that this was a different era. That you have the best player on the face of the planet who's competing to try to win his championship in eight seasons you have a system that works you're the architect behind it fine you might not get the credit that you so desperately want for it but why 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 blow it up why try to do the rebuild if he didn't push the rebuild button the Bulls could have might have won Eight in ten years had Jordan, you know, not sit, stay for the ninety four ninety five season. 
you don't tell me that Jordan that let's say Phil comes back, Jordan stays on, Pippen resigns, they're not going to win the championship in 1999. When you think about the way that it almost ended after the 97 season, and then Krause's arm had to be twisted to keep Phil for the 98 season, and Ron sort of telling him, you know what, let's go for another championship. Let's, let's get one more crack at it. And Jordan describing it as, no one's taken it from us yet. We should have a right to defend our championship. And then it, it happened to be a year later that they weren't given that opportunity to defend what was theirs. But you look at this power struggle, and it's so different from the way it is now. With LeBron James in Cleveland, he, his first year there, the head coach is David Black. Gets them all the way to the finals. Gets them to game six of the NBA finals with Kyrie and Kevin Love out for just about that entire series. And LeBron extends them to six games. Of course, that was an epic performance by LeBron. But still, that's partially Black working the players around LeBron to get them to that 2-1 series lead and ultimately falling in six, but to get them to game six and not folding at the hands of the birth of the Warriors dynasty. And then a couple months later, midway through the following season, LeBron doesn't like Black. He wants Ty Lue in as his coach. Okay. Management says, no problem. Black's out. In comes Ty Lue. And they get right back to the finals. And it's, part of an epic collapse of the Warriors that they're able to win the championship. But that was all LeBron. Here you have Michael Jordan, who is the most recognizable face, not only on the Bulls, not only in the NBA, not only in the United States, one of the most recognizable faces in the entire world. And Jordan can't even pull his sleigh in in the organization that Krause has that Napoleon complex that I need to be the one to get all the credit for this. It's really mind-blowing, and it, I think it's just playing more to that that Krause says, you know what? Yeah, okay, Jordan could be getting all the headlines, but just remember this. I'm still in charge here. Yeah, that's a good place to leave, leave this year. We did get a very fun two hours. Two more coming up next week. I'm going to be joined by the guys of the Fantasy World podcast, the great Alan Pines, Zach Cohn Douglas. Toss them back in December when we did fantasy football playoffs. They're going to be on next week to talk about episodes five and six. We're going to talk some dream team next week, it looks like. The dream team, there was a documentary about them a couple years ago. I, I think it was NBA TV who put that one out. Another piece of just eating up basketball and basketball at, at its prime is you think about the collection of NBA superstars that were on that team and, you know, the stories that we've heard from that. It'll be interesting to see how Jordan reflects on that while in perspective of the 98 season. Yep. It'll be fun indeed next week. Ian, thanks for all this time. Really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people find you on social media if they want to keep up with some of the stuff you're up to? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ian R. Sachs, that's I-A-N-R-S-A-C-K-S, no spaces, no underscores. 
Mike, thanks so much for having me this week. It's always fun talking to you, but in particularly fun talking about Jordan and the last dance. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Too bad Ozzy could not be here. Maybe we'll find him in Vegas going at some point in the future. But I'm going on to the two-minute drill. I'm going to give you my thoughts on the end of Homeland. The finale aired on Sunday. My thoughts on that right after this. Air and naval forces of the United States launched a series of strikes against terrorist facilities. Run out by 103 crashed into the town of London. The assassin acts of terror in Africa, Europe, and the This will not stand this aggression against the West. It is relentless pursuit of terror. We will make no distinction. The USS Cole was attacked while refueling in the port of... This was an act of terrorism. All right, we are back here on the two-minute drill. You just heard the theme of the Showtime drama, Homeland. They wrap up their final season on Showtime on Sunday. And this show, it's been very interesting ride with Homeland. I got to say that. It's been a little out there. I mean, the show started off on absolute fire. It was one of the most talked about shows in America when it first came out. The first three seasons, spectacular. They lost their way a little bit in the middle. Came back at the end. Had some interesting stuff going on here. And... The, I got to say, I watched the finale the other day. It had some thoughts. Before we go any further, I have to throw up the good old-fashioned spoiler warning. Okay, so if you have not seen the finale of Homeland, you want to see it without getting my opinion on it, go now. Go watch the episode. Come back after you're done. Otherwise, buckle in, and we have an interesting finale to discuss because this finale sort of had an interesting tale to it because we opened the finale with an interesting topic here and I think the use of the footage of Brody's famous recording back in season one when he was doing the terrorist attack he was getting ready to do make the martyr video basically the whole point of the show started out was that Carrie is the CIA agent who believes that Brody the Marine POW who was missing for years and was found had been turned into a terrorist by Al-Qaeda. She believed it. Nobody else did. And the idea that Brody betrayed his country, that sort of sits with Carrie at the beginning of the finale. And people forgot in the previous episode, she has this dilemma where she's trying to prevent a nuclear war, basically, between the United States and Pakistan over like a terrorist that, they're, that supposedly Pakistan is harboring. And there is a piece of evidence out there in the form of a flight recorder that will defuse the war. Russia has it, and Carrie's Russian contact basically says, I will give you the recording if you find Saul Berenson's asset. And for folks of the show, watch the show know, Saul Berenson, Carrie's mentor, that relationship has been the, sort of the driving force of the show. At the beginning of the show, it was the Carrie-Brody dynamic, but... At the end of the season three, after Brody was killed, then it sort of morphed into the Saul and Carrie show being the rest of the way. The dynamic between the two characters, between Manny Patinkin and Claire Danes throughout the show. We had this dynamic here where Carrie might have to potentially kill Saul to get the name of the asset in Russia that he had in order to trade for this recording to help avert a war that would cost thousands and thousands of lives. The episode does a great job get a lot of callbacks in this episode. I think it's fun. Yeah, like I said, you have the Brody clip at the beginning, that moment. You could 
sort of playing on Carrie's driving back to Saul's house. So you sort of see that she's sort of thinking about this as it's going on. You see that. You see her sister come back in the mix. We haven't seen her in a little while. We see Saul's sister, who hasn't been on the show since, I think, maybe season two. I want to say the last time we saw her, season three. She's back on the show now at the end of the show. We got a reminder about Carrie's daughter, Franny, who she had with Brody. We get reference to her there, and we got a good old-fashioned showdown between Carrie and Saul, where Carrie basically has to debate whether or not she actually go through with killing Saul to get the contact and pass it on to prevent the warp. In the end, she decides not to. She opts to, you know what, she plays a con instead, where she goes to the West Bank, finds Saul's sister, cons her to giving her the failsafe that Saul leaves in the event he dies. She gets the name, passes it on, becomes a traitor to her country in the process. But what she does next is very interesting because like Brody, which is I think the parallel the show is trying to draw you to is that at the beginning of the show, Carrie is chasing the traitor in Brody. In season eight, Carrie is Brody. She's become the very traitor that she thought she was chasing down. But Brody at the time was doing it for the wrong reasons. Carrie takes her opportunity and tries to make things up to Saul and the, her country in the end by pulling off a deep cover act where she basically flees to Russia after she gets caught. She goes ahead and she sets up with her handler, Yegeni Gromov. They basically enter a relationship. She writes this whole book to gain his trust about how, why she betrayed the United States. And then she uses it to pass on information to Saul and says, I'll be your new Russian asset, basically. I will like fill that role of the of the asset you had who killed herself to avoid being caught by the Russians. And it was an interesting dynamic. It's the first step in repairing that relationship that had been so critical to the thing. We thought it was irreparably shattered when she went behind his back and basically compromised the asset to prevent the war. That relationship now, it starts to get in there. You see Carrie at the end of the show. She's very happy where she is because the show read the character correctly. This is not a character you could have go, oh, I'm going to be home with my family. I'll have a happy ending. Not going to happen for Carrie. Carrie's best job on this show was simply, you know, like, I love to be a spy. I have to help out in whatever way I can. This is her way of doing it. And she's with someone she cares about in a way. She's using that situation to her advantage. And she is pulling off a con and still being a spy, even though she's not officially recognized as one. I think it's true of the character. I think the show did a good job and gave something it didn't expect. They offered you a little hope. And this is a show that's gotten very dark at times. They tell you about all the bad things in the world, all the negatives. At one point, Carrie's called the drone queen in season four because of how she's using drones to kill terrorists. We have a positive ending for the character. There's a little hope, but you know what? Things will be okay in this world. They left the door open that, you know what? If they decide we want to make a movie down the line, they can do it because they left... Carrie has sent alive. They left Saul Berenson alive. They left most of the key principles alive. So they could do a movie if they want. But if this is the last we get of the Homeland universe, I'm very satisfied. I think they did a good job sticking the landing. The very well done sh- end of the show. It was a very important show for its time because when this show came out, everybody was obsessed with Homeland. Homeland was the biggest deal for about three years. It didn't quite stick the landing, but the middle was bumpy. The end, they nailed it. And I think they got to give them credit for that. Great job to the team making Homeland. 
All right, and there you have it for this week's show. I want to thank my guests. First up, Joe D'Aloisio for coming on to recap the NFL draft, kick off the fan forum. Speaking of the fan forum, we had a lot of people come through there, including Nick Frietta, Jersey Joe Arquino, Joe Chaffee, Kevin Walsh, Dan Martini, Andy Spenza, Charlie Borges, Troy Moriello, Will Schneiderhand, and Sam DeRosa. And I also want to thank Ian Sachs, for spending nearly an hour on the line, be recapping episodes three and four of The Last Dance. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my potentially very inaccurate game predictions of what NFL games will be in prime time the schedule comes out next week, check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, just all the usual suspects. Search for Just End the Suffering there. You can find all of our old episodes. And we're in quarantine, not much going on. Feel free to dive through the archives. A lot of good stuff in there. You can also follow my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. I put the episodes up on there, as well as individual segments. So, like, if you want to hear Joe D's draft talk, that will be on there. Ian and I talk about the last dance, that will be on there. Feel free to do your feedback and star ratings as well, or I'll make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. It's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. I tweet with the hashtag CasualGoodell made it to the end of this week's show. Again, hashtag CasualGoodell made it to the end of this week's podcast. Next week, we're going to recap part three of The Last Dance, episodes five and six, with the guys from the Fantasy World podcast, Alan Pine, Zach Cohn Douglas. We'll be talking about that. We'll recap the West World finale and more. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Packers fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.